two wizards. Two wizards? Two wizards. Two wizards. It's definitely that time in the semester where, yeah, it's, it's the, as of recording, it's the week of Thanksgiving break. My dear sweet students, they've been working hard, kind of, all semester. <laughs> <laughs> and like just all of us, like we're all just, we're tired, we're, we're, we're over it. Just want to like end this thing and then go on to the next one, but we still have, you know, a good three weeks left or so. But like, at least for me, I'm, I'm, I'm practically done teaching by this point. Like, it's right. just like, all right, I'm, I'm here to help you with your final paper. Just, just I, I, go off and be free and learn all the things that you learned with, uh, within this very silly criticizing television class. <laughs> go, my children, go. Ruin, go, ruin children. Christmas and Thanksgiving dinners. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, and then also, as far as I know, I'm not teaching in the spring. So oh, I guess that just means double super ultra um, Josh coming back on the two wizards podcast arc and like not just leaning on mark all of the time for for episodes and things <laughs> nah no i number one it would be kind of selfish to be like josh your dissertation can wait you need to record this like that's number one but also number two it's not like i'm busy you know it's right <laughs> yeah yeah that also but even um, when i even when i was like you know super stressed being a produce wizard like I still mm-hmm. found the time, and I still made the time, and you know, y'all, you got, and that's the point. I think is that's what's important, and I don't know. I was gonna get schmaltzy there and thought better of it. <laughs> uh, well, I mean that that uh, that is always true, and you know, it's not that we two wizards are ever scared of crying or showing our emotions and feelings, but we have, but you know, hey, we look into the abyss so that you don't have to. But by abyss, that doesn't mean our own personal issues. Like that is that is within the wizard's sanctum, you know. So, uh, but at any rate, welcome everybody. It's wonderful to have you here at the Two Wizards Podcast at Two Wizards Pod C One. My name is Josh, and I am a wizard. And my name is Mark. And just for tonight, I don't want to be a wizard. I want to be a thing chained in a dungeon. <laughs> I mean. That could also be a wizard, but I'm but I'm feeling you there, buddy. I'm feeling you, and I'm when you proposed this idea to me, I was very excited, and I was thinking like, yeah, it has been it has been a minute. So, Mark, what are we what are we doing tonight? What are we what, what are we uncovering? What are we finding out if there's some sort of like weird doppelganger or something like that going along? <laughs> Is it a conspiracy? Who knows? Well, Is it you a know, conspiracy? You, who knows? <laughs> you know, you. You did joke about, like, it's, you know, the resurgence of Josh and no more leaning on Mark, but we, as two wizards, are both guilty of leaning on one Robert E. Howard, and that is what we're mm-hmm. doing tonight, buddy. And we're going to lean right. into it by reading probably the greatest Conan story he wrote, A Witch Shall Be Born. Oh, man. Yeah. Very excited. I So, yeah, I, I think uh, between our last uh, Howard reading uh, and this one, I, I, I did it. I was I was talking up this, like... Um, compendium of uh, Conan the Barbarian, this like nice like uh, hardcover book with like all, all sorts of extra maps and 
uh, stuff like that. Oh hell yeah! Uh, and I pulled the trigger on that bad boy, and I got it. So yeah, I'm nice. I'm very excited. I'm very excited for that too. And I'm also very excited for this other thing that we have in our Wizards Cups. So, Mark, what what are you drinking this time? So the assignment was, um, you know, this story's got a lot to do with, like, you know, a, a you know, a, a, what do you call that? A clone, I guess, or not, or a shapeshifter, or like an imposter. It, mm. it, it deals with an imposter, and you know, you think what you're getting on the label of Terramis is actually Terramis the Queen, but it's not. It's something else entirely. And so mm. I said. Let's build our own six-pack, um, and then cover the labels. So we know what we got. We know we have beer. Um, mm-hmm. And so we just kind of went crazy. Um, I was I just got back from um, Durango this afternoon, and I was able to pick up some special stuff up there. And I had my Mrs. Wizard put them in beer koozies, and then she stuck oh. those in a bag. So I've got a list of the three that it might be, but we'll see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, fair enough. I did the classic not follow directions or like call an, an audible at the last minute. But this still works. Okay. But, the, but this still works for our purposes. So because another idea that we floated was, yeah, yeah, something like vaguely Conan-y, barbarian-y. Um, so I have some wine with me because he's always talking about drinking wine. But also appropriate to our reading tonight is I have Josh wine. I have the oh. Josh cellar because it's like, ah, oh, is it... Is it Josh the Wizard talking, or is it Josh the Wine talking? <laughs> <laughs> Clever boy. <laughs> uh, so this is the, uh, what is it? It's the uh, uh, Josh Sellers Heritage uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. And, yeah, it's good stuff. All right. All right. <laughs> so I'm going to reach into my Wizard's bag of holding here, and I can oh, okay. be um, out of Four Floyds, which I believe you're familiar with, Josh. Wink, wink. Oh, yes. Yes, um, yes. Their backmasking oatmeal stout, Ooh. which I think you had like two weeks ago. I know you did because we were joking about we were going to talk about backmask. Anyway, um, Lunar Thrones, or out of I don't know what it is. It's called Eins Eins Tolgert. Eins Tolgert. Yes, hmm. it's a toasted okay. porter. It had a Viking on the can. That's why I bought it. And Amanda found the sampler pack with uh, four Floyds, and I was like, oh shit, Josh keeps stocking them up. So I'm reaching yeah, in absolutely. here. And I pull out the beer koozie marked Sky High Stampede. Oh, all right. Well, yeah. here is on you, buddy. Cheers. Cheers. Good buddy. All right. I don't know what it is, but it's really good. Okay. What, 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 what's some of the some of the tastes you're getting? Some of the aromas? Well, is it? I went ahead and just looked. It's the uh, back masking. It's really good. Oh. That oatmeal stout. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm bad at mystery. I'm sorry, guys. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. You're, you're just the whole like, uh, hey, you you get a popsicle that has a that has a joke set up on the on the uh, wooden stick, and instead of like being a patient, you know, and like going all the way down to get to the punchline, you just you just you just bite the whole thing off, so that you know that. Anyway, all right. Anyway, okay. So anyway, here you go. Uh, a Witch Shall Be Born by Robert E. Howard. Um, so, Mark, would you like to lead us off? And then I can, yeah. I can hop in? Sweet. Yeah, sounds good. The Blood Red Crescent. Terramis, Queen of Quran, awakened from a dream-haunted slumber to silence that seemed more like the stillness of nighted catacombs than the normal quiet of her sleeping place. She lay staring into the darkness, wondering why the ca- candles in their golden candelabrum had gone out. 
a flecking of stars marked a gold bar casement that lent no illumination to the interior of the chamber. But as Teramis lay there, she became aware of a spot of radiance glowing in the darkness before her. She watched, puzzled. It grew in its intensity, and it deepened as it expanded, a widening disk of lurid light hovering against the dark velvet hangings of the opposite wall. Teramis caught her breath. Starting up to a sitting position, a dark object was visible in that circle of light. A human head. In a sudden panic, the queen opened her lips to cry out for her maids. Then she checked herself. The glow was more lurid, the head more vividly lined. It was a woman's head, small, delicately molded, superbly poised, with a high-piled mass of, of lustrous black hair. The face grew distinct as she stared, and it was in the sight of this face that the cry froze in Teramis's throat. The features were her own! She might have been looking into a mirror which, subtly, which subtly altered her reflection, lending a tigerish gleam of eye to the vindictive curl of lip. <gasps> Ishtar! gasped Teramis. I am bewitched! Appallingly, the apparition spoke. Its voice was like honeyed venom. Bewitched? No, sweet sister. Here is no sorcery. Sister? stammered the bewildered girl. I have no sister. You never had a sister? came the sweet, poisonously mocking voice. Never a twin sister whose flesh was as soft as yours to caress or hurt? Why, once I had a sister, answered Teramis, still convinced that she was in the grip of some sort of nightmare. But she died. The beautiful face in the disc was convulsed with her aspect of fury. So hellish became that expression that Teramis, cowering back, half expected to see snaky locks writhe hissing about the ivory brow. You lie! The accusation was spat from between the snarling red lips. She did not die, fool! Oh, enough of this mummery. Look, and let your sight be blasted. Light ran suddenly along the hangings like flaming serpents, and incredibly the candles in the golden sticks flared up again. Teramis crouched on her velvet couch, her lithe legs flexed beneath her, staring wide-eyed at the pantherous figure which posed mockingly before her. It was as if she gazed upon another Teramis, identical with herself in every contour of feature and limb, yet animated by an alien and evil personality. The face of the stranger waif reflected the opposite of every characteristic in the countenance of the queen denoted. Lust and mystery sparkled in her scintillant eyes. Cruelty lurked in the curl of her full red lips. Each movement of her supple body was subtly su suggestive. Her coiffure imitated that of the queen's. On her feet were gilded sandals such as Teramis wore in her boudoir. The sleeveless, low-necked silk tunic girdled at the waist with a cloth of gold cincture was a duplicate of the queen's night garment. Who are you? gasped Teramis, an icy chill she could not explain creeping along her spine. Explain your presence before I call my ladies-in-waiting to summon the guard. Scream until the roof beams crack, callously answered the stranger. Your sluts will not wake till dawn, though the palace springs into flames about them. Your guardsmen will not hear your squeals. They have been sent out of the wing of the, this wing of the palace. What? <laughs> Sorry, exclaimed Teramis, stiffening with outraged majesty. Who dared give my guardsmen such a command? I did, sweet sister, sneered the other girl. A little while ago, before I entered. They thought it was their darling, adored queen. Ha! How beautifully I acted the part. With what imperious dignity, softened by womanly sweetness, did I address the great louts who knelt in their armor and plumed helmets. Teramis felt as if a stifling net of bewilderment were being drawn about her. 
Who are you? She cried desperately. What madness is this? Why do you come here? Who am I? There was the spite of a she-cobra's hiss in the soft response. The girl stepped to the edge of the couch, grasped the queen's white shoulders with fierce fingers, and bent to glare full into the startled eyes of Teramis. And under the spell of that hypnotic glare, the queen forgot to resent the unprecedented outrage of violent hands laid on real flesh. Fool, greeted the girl between her teeth. Can you ask? Can you wonder? I am Salome. Salome, breathed Teramis the word, and the hairs prickled on her scalp as she realized the incredible numbing truth of the, sta of the statement. I thought you died within the hour of your birth, she said feebly. So thought many, answered the woman who called herself Salome. They carried me into the desert to die, damn them. I, a mewing, puling babe whose life was so young it was scarcely the flicker of a candle. And do you know why they bore me forth to die? I... I have heard the story, faltered Teramis. Salome laughed fiercely and slapped her bosom. The low-necked tunic left the upper part of her firm breast bare, and between them there shone a curious mark, a crescent red as blood. The mark of the witch, cried Teramis, recoiling. Aye, Salome's laughter was dagger-edged with hate. The curse of the kings of Kauran. Aye, they tell the tale in the marketplaces, with wagging beards and rolling eyes, the pious fools. They tell how the first queen of our line had traffic with a fiend of darkness and bore him a daughter who lives in foul legendry to this day. And thereafter, in each century, a girl was born into the Ashkarian dynasty, with a scarlet half-moon between her breasts that signified her destiny. Every century a witch shall be born, so ran the ancient curse, and so it has come to pass. Some were slain at birth as they sought to slay me. Some walked the earth as witches, proud daughters of Kauran, with a moon of hell burning upon their ivory bosoms. Each was named Salome. I too am Salome. It was always Salome the witch. It will always be Salome the witch, even when the mountains of ice have roared down from the pole and ground the civilizations to ruin, and a new world has risen from the ashes and dust. Even then there shall be Salomes to walk the earth, to trap men's hearts by their sorcery, to dance before the kings of the world, to see the heads of the wise men fall at their pleasure. But, but you, stammered Teramis. I? The scintillant eyes burned like dark fires of mystery. They carried me into the desert far from the city and laid me naked on the hot sand under the flaming sun. And then they rode away and left me for the jackals and the vultures and the desert wolves. But the life in me was stronger than the life of the common folk, for it partakes of the essence of the forces that seethe in the black gulfs beyond mortal ken. The hours passed. The sun slashed down like the molten flames of hell, but I did not die. I, something of that torment I remember, faintly and far away, as one remembers a dim, formless dream. Then there were camels and yellow-skinned men who wore silk robes and spoke in a weird tongue. Strayed from the caravan road, they passed close by, and their leader saw me and recognized the scarlet crescent on my bosom. Then he took me up and gave me life. He was a magician from far Katai, returning to his native kingdom after a journey to Stygia. He took me with him to purple-towering Paiking, its minarets rising amid the vine-festooned jungles of bamboo. And there I grew to womanhood under his teaching. Age had steeped him deep in black wisdom, not weakened his powers of evil. Many things he taught me. She paused, smiling enigmatically, with wicked mystery gleaming in her dark eyes. Then she tossed her head. 
He drove me from him at last, saying I was but a common witch in spite of his teachings, and not fit to command the mighty sorcery he would have taught me. He would have made me queen of the world and ruled the nations through me, he said, but I was only a harlot of darkness. But what of it? I can never endure to seclude myself in a golden tower and spend the long hours staring into a crystal globe, mumbling over incantations written on serpent skin and the blood of virgins, poring over musty volumes in forgotten languages. He said I was but an earthly sprite, knowing naught of the deeper gulfs of cosmic sorcery. Well, this world contains all I desire, power and pomp and glittering pageantry, handsome men and soft women for my paramours and my slaves. He had told me who I was, of the curse and my heritage. I have returned to take that which I have as much right as you. Now it is mine by right of possession. What do you mean? Teramis sprang and faced her sister, stung out of her bewilderment and fright. Do you imagine that by drugging a few of my maids and tricking a few of my guardsmen, you have established a claim to the throne of Koran? Do not forget that I am the queen of Koran. I shall give you a place of honor as my sister, but... Salome laughed hatefully. How generous of you, dear sweet sister. But before you begin putting me in my place, perhaps you will tell me whose soldiers camp in the plain outside the city walls. They are Shemitish mercenaries of Constantius, the Kothic Wavode of the Free Companies. And what do they in Kauran, cooed Salome. Teramis felt that she was being subtly mocked, but she answered with an assumption of dignity which she scarcely felt. Constantius asked permission to pass along the borders of Koran on his way to Turin. He made himself hostage for their good behavior as long as they're within my domains. And Constantius, pursued Salome, did he not ask your hand today? Teramis shot her a clouded glance of suspicion. How did you know that? An insolent, an insolent shrug of the slim naked shoulder was her only reply. You refused, dear sister? Certainly I refused, exclaimed Teramis angrily. Do you, an Ashkarian princess yourself, suppose that the queen of Koran could treat such a proposal with anything but disdain? Wed a blood-handed adventurer, a man exiled from his own kingdoms because of his crimes, and the leader of organized plunderers and hired murderers? I should never have allowed him to bring his black-bearded slayers into Koran. But he is virtually a prisoner in the South Tower and guarded by my soldiers. Tomorrow I shall order his troops to leave the kingdom. He himself shall be kept captive until they are away from the border. Meantime, my soldiers man the walls of the city, and I have warned him that he will answer for any outrages perpetrated on the villagers or the shepherds by his mercenaries. He is confined in the South Tower? asked Salome. That is what I said. Why do you ask? For answer, Salome clapped her hands and lifted her voice, with a gurgle of cruel mirth in it called. The queen grants you an audience, Falcon. A gold arabesque door opened, and a tall figure entered the chamber, and at the sight of which Teramis cried out in amazement and anger, Constantius, you dare enter my chamber? As you see, your majesty, he bent his dark, hawk-like head in mock humility. Constantius, whom men called Falcon, was tall, broad-shouldered, and slim-waisted, lithe and strong as pliant as steel. He, he was handsome in an aquiline, ruthless kind of way. His face was burnt dark by the sun, and his hair... Which, he, which grew far back from his high, narrow forehead, was black as a raven. His dark eyes were penetrating and alert. The hardness of his thin lips had not softened by his thin black mustache. His boots were Cordovan le leather, his hose and doublet of plain dark silk, tarnished with the wear of the camps and stains of armor rust. Twisting his mustache, he let his gaze travel up and down the shrinking queen with an effrontery that made her wince. 
By Ishtar, Teramis, he said silkily. I find you more alluring in your night tunic than in your queenly robes. Truly, this is an auspicious night. Fear grew in the queen's dark eyes. She was no fool, and she knew that Constantius would never dare this outrage unless he was sure of himself. You are mad, she said. If I am in your power in this chamber, you are no less in power of my subjects, who will rend you to pieces if you touch me. Go at once, if you would live. Both laughed mockingly. Salome made an impatient gesture. Enough of this farce. Let us on to the next act in the comedy. Listen, dear sister. It, is, it was I who sent Constantius here. When I decided to take the phone of Cauron, I cast about for a man to aid me and chose the Falcon because of his utter lack of all characteristics men call good. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, drink. Great. Drink. I am overwhelmed, princess, murmured Constantius sardonically with a profound bow. I sent him to Cauron, and once his men were camped in the plain outside and he was in the palace, I entered the city by that small gate in the west wall. The fools guarding it thought it was you returning from, them, from some nocturnal adventure. You hellcat! Teramis's cheeks flamed, and her resentment got the better of her, better of her regal reserve. Salome smiled hardly. They were properly surprised and shocked, but admitted me without question. I entered the palace the same way, and gave the order to the surprised guards that sent them marching away, as well as the men who guarded Constantius in the South Tower. Then I came here, attending to the ladies-in-waiting on the way. Teramis' fingers clenched, and she paled. Well, what's next? she asked in a shaky voice. Listen, Salome inclined her head. Faintly through the casement there came the clink of marching men in armor. Gruff voices shouted in an alien tongue, then cr and cries of alarm mingled with the shouts. The people awaken and grow fearful, said Constantius sardonically. You had better go and reassure them, Salome. Call me Teramis, answered Salome. We must become accustomed to it. What have you done, cried Teramis. What have you done? I have gone to the gates and ordered the soldiers to open them, answered Salome. They were astounded, but they obeyed. That is the Falcon's army you hear, marching into the city. You devil, cried Teramis. You betrayed my people, in my guise. You have made me seem a traitor. Oh, I shall go to them. With a cruel laugh, Salome caught her wrist and jerked her back. The magnificent suppleness of the queen was helpless against the vindictive strength that steeled Salome's slender limbs. You know how to reach the dungeons from the palace, Constantius, said the witch girl. Good. Take this spitfire and lock her in the strongest cell. The jailers are all sound and drugged sleep. I saw to that. Send a man to cut their throats before they can awaken. None must ever know what has occurred tonight. Thenceforward, I am Teramis, and Teramis is a nameless prisoner in an unknown dungeon. Constantius smiled with a glint of strong white teeth under his thin mustache. Very good. But you would not deny me a little, uh, amusement first? Not I. Tame the scornful hussy as you will. With a wicked laugh, Salome flung her sister into the Cothian's arms and turned away through the door that opened into the outer corridor. Fright widened Teramis's lovely eyes, her supple figure rigid and straining against Constantius's embrace. She forgot the men marching in the streets, forgot the outrage to her queenship in the face of the menace to her womanhood. 
She forgot all sensations but terror and shame as she faced the, the, the complete cynicism of Constantius's burning, mocking eyes, felt his hard arms crushing her writhing body. Salome, hurrying along the corridor outside, smiled spitefully as a scream of despair and agony rang shuddering through the palace. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Gotta love Howard so that, much. He's just so, just so, oh, so good. So good. I just, I just love it. You know, like I keep seeing that meme every once in a while on Twitter. Soy R R Martin or whatever, okay, and it's, okay. and he's like, and he's like, wouldn't it be great if the world was morally gray and awful and there was no right and wrong. And then there's like the Chad J R R Tolkien, who's like, good and evil clearly exist. <laughs> And that's Howard, baby. Yeah. Oh, that's Howard. Yeah, but, so yes, like these are clear. These are clearly the bad guys, and uh, Teramis is clearly like the 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 good queen. But they're still like compelling characters, just because they're like mustache twirling villains. That doesn't mean that that doesn't make them any less awesome. That doesn't make their outrage uh, any less like cheesy or something. Ah, it's so good. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's also literally the mustache twirling villain. I think that's he's like bald. Yeah, he's got like the high widow's peak. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Which and, and and again, like there's no like hard and fast kind of like rules about um, the land in the Hyperborean Age, but um, but but okay. So uh, um, we're in Kauran or. Karan? Karan? I don't. Karan. I don't know. I just do it phonetically. I mean, it, I guess it doesn't have to be like a like a desert kingdom. But then again, if young Salome was um, exposed out in the desert somewhere, well, hey, that's probably something like that. But uh, I like how they're like it, even if it is a desert kingdom, because we're about to find out it's pretty dry here. Um, okay. But like, you know, they keep talking about like how white everybody is. It's like bullshit. They ought to be at least a little bit tan. Yeah. Come on. Now. <laughs> Yeah, come on, right? This like ain't fucking they... Ireland. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and then uh, Constantius is from uh, Koth, yeah. which like that, like w- w- what's like kind of sort of yeah, that's right. The, the, the Kothians are, um, and then that's like what sort of like semi equivalent or because it's analogy? I think it's supposed to be like the Middle East kind of sort of. Okay. Because, like, okay. the Shemites are also there, and they're, they're definitely supposed to be, like, the analog for, uh, like, the, 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 the Jews. Okay, And right. then, like, right. Stygia yes. is, like, in Africa, and that's, like, where you get the kingdoms of the blacks, too. Like, in, um, what is it? Like, there's Kush, and, um, there's a couple, but... Yeah. And it, it's uh, literally yeah. just Africa. Or, right. you know, the stand-in for right. the African continent. But, you know, it's all in the one right. super... You, you know how, You know how it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. Yeah. I know, I know. But just to, you know, hey, maybe... Maybe we have some 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 new listeners or or some listeners who haven't heard us uh, get into Howard yet, and so yeah, just kind of helping helping the good people at home, yeah. kind of place place us like, well, Mark, I, I mean, hey, we you know we said we're going to read Conan the Barbarian, and we just got through an entire chapter, and uh, the 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 Sumerians nowhere to be found. Like, where, wh- however, will he? Is this like a weird branching off story where like it's it's set in the world of Conan, but he doesn't appear? <laughs> no, we wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> Conan is the the bulwark of masculinity, and he's strong, and he's yes. broody, and comes from a gloomy land, and worships a broody, gloomy god. And we ought to just 
pick up if you're ready, Josh, with the Tree of Death, right? Yes. <laughs> Let's do it. We're on to chapter two, which also just like the chapter titles alone, you know, like the 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 Blood Red Crescent, the Tree of Death. Ah, so good. So good. Okay. And speaking of, here we are, chapter two, the Tree of Death. The young soldier's hose and shirt were smeared with dried blood, wet with sweat and gray with dust. Blood oozed from the deep gash in his thigh, from the cuts on his breast and shoulder. Perspiration glistened on his livid face, and his fingers were knotted in the cover of the divan on which he lay. Yet his words reflected mental suffering that outweighed physical pain. She must be mad, he repeated again and again, like one still stunned by some monstrous and incredible happening. It's like a nightmare. Tamaris, who I'll call... <laughs> Tamaris, whom Alcaran loves, betraying her people to that devil from Koth? Oh, Ishtar, why was I not slain? Better die than live to see our queen turn traitor and harlot. <laughs> I guess he's also Southern. just like just from the country. Larry's <laughs> just, just a good old boy. Came up from the you know came up to the big city to be yeah. a guardsman. Oh, jeez, boy, ah, oh, hamburgers, Conan. Uh, <laughs> lie still, Valerius begged the girl who was washing and bandaging his wounds with trembling hands. Oh, please lie still, darling. You'll make your wounds worse. I dared not summon a leech. No, muttered the wounded worth. Constantius's blue-bearded devils will be searching for the, the quarters for wounded Karani. They'll hang every man who has wounds to show he fought against him. Oh, Tamaris, how could you betray the people who worshipped you? In his fierce agony, he writhed, weeping in rage and shame, and the terrified girl caught him in her arms, straining his tossing head against her bosom, imploring him to be quiet. Better dead than the black shame that has come upon Karan this day, he groaned. Did you see it, Igva? Or Ivga? Igva? I don't fucking know. Yeah, it's a weird one. Yeah. Ivga? No, Valerius. Her soft, nimble fingers were at work again, gently cleansing and closing the gaping edges of his raw wounds. I was awakened by a noise of the fighting in of the fighting in the streets. I looked at the casement and saw the Shemites cutting people down. Then presently I heard you calling me faintly from the alley door. I had reached the limits of my strength, he muttered. I fell in the alley and could not rise. I I knew they'd find me by I knew they'd find me soon if I lay there. I killed three of the blue bearded beasts by Ishtar. They'll never swagger through Kauron's streets by the gods. The fiends are tearing their hearts in hell. The trembling girl crooned soothingly to him, as to a wounded child, and closed his panting lips with her own cool, sweet mouth. But the fire that raged in his soul would not allow him to lie silent. Well, I was not on the wall when the Shemites entered, he burst out. I was asleep in the barracks, with the others not on duty. It was just before dawn when our captain entered, and his face was pale under his helmet. The Shemites are in the city, he said. The queen came to the southern gate and gave orders that they should be admitted. She made the men come down from the walls where they've been on guard since Constantius entered the kingdom. I don't understand it. Neither does anyone else. But I heard her give the order, and I and we obeyed as we always do. We were ordered to assemble in the square before the palace, form ranks outside the barracks and march. Leave your arms and armor here. Mishtar knows what this means, but it is the queen's order. Well, when we came to the square, the Shemites were drawn up on foot opposite the palace. Ten thousand of the blue-bearded devils, fully armed, and people's heads were thrust out of every window and, and door on the square. The streets leading into the square were thronged by bewildered folk. Teramis was standing on the steps of the palace, alone except for Constantius, who stood stroking his mustache like a great lean cat who has just devoured a sparrow. But fifty Shemites with bows in their hands were ranged below him. He's literally, yeah, just a mustache twirling. Yeah, literally. 
<laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's where the Queen's Guard should have been, but they were drawn up at the foot of the palace stairs, puzzled as we, though they had come fully armed in spite of the Queen's order. Teramis spoke to us then, and told us that she had reconsidered the proposal made her by Constantius. Why, only yesterday she threw it in his teeth in open court, and that she decided... Or that she had decided to make him her royal consort. She had not explained why she had brought the Shemites into the city so treacherously, but she said that, as Constantius had control of a body of professional fighting men, the army of Cauron would no longer be needed, and therefore she disbanded it and ordered us to go quietly to our homes. Why, obedience to our queen is second nature to us, but we were struck dumb and found no word to respond. We... There you go. We broke ranks almost before we knew what we were doing, like men in a daze. But when the palace guard was ordered to disarm likewise and disband, the captain of the guard, Conan, interrupted. Men said he was off duty the night before and drunk, but he was wide awake now. He shouted to the guardsmen to stand as they were until they received an order from him, and such is his dominance of his men that they obeyed in spite of the queen. He strode up to the palace steps and glared at Teramis, and then he roared, this is not the queen. This isn't Teramis. It's some devil in masquerade. Then hell was to pay. I don't know what just happened. I think a Shemite struck Conan and Conan killed him. The next instant, the square was a battlefield. The Shemites fell on the guardsmen, and their spears and arrows struck down many soldiers who had, been, who had already disbanded. Some of us grabbed up such weapons as best we could and fought back. We hardly knew what we were fighting for. But it was against Constantius and his devils. Not against Tamaris, I swear it. Constantius shouted to cut the traitors down. We were not traitors. Despair and bewilderment shook his voice. The girl murmured, murmured pityingly, not understanding at all, but aching in sympathy with her lover's suffering. The people did not know which side to take. It was a madhouse of confusion and bewilderment. We who fought didn't have a chance, in no formation, without armor and only half-armed. The guards were fully armed and drawn up in a square, uh, but there were only 500 of them. We took a heavy toil before they were cut down. But there could only be one conclusion to such a battle. And while her people were being slaughtered before her, Tamaris stood on the palace steps with Constantius's arm around her waist and laughed like a heartless, beautiful fiend. Gods, it's all mad, mad! I never saw a man fight as Conan fought. He put his back to the courtyard wall, and before they overpowered him, the dead men were strewn in heaps thigh deep about him. But at last they dragged him down, a hundred against one. When I saw him fall, I dragged myself away feeling as if the world had burst under my very fingers. I heard Constantius call to his dogs to take the captain alive, stroking his mustache with that hateful smile on his lips. <laughs> it's just butters. I'm sorry. It's butters. just butters. Like, amazing. Oh, bye, Ishtar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear sweet boy. <laughs> um, that smile was on the lips of Constantius at that very moment. He sat his horse among a cluster of his men, thick-bodied Shemites with curled blue-black beards and hooked noses. The low, swinging sun struck glints from their peaked helmets and the silvered scales of their corslets. Nearly a mile behind, the walls and towers of Koran rose sheer out of the meadowlands. By the side of the caravan road, a heavy cross had been planted. On the grim tree hung a man, nailed there by iron spikes through his hands and feet, naked but for a loincloth. The man was almost a giant in stature. His muscles stood out thick in corded ridges on limbs and his body, which the sun had long ago baked brown. The perspiration of agony beaded his face and his mighty breast, but from under the tangle of the black mane that fell over his low, broad forehead, his blue eyes blazed with an unquenched fire. 
Blood oozed sluggishly from the lacerations on his hands and feet. Constantius saluted him mockingly. I am sorry, Captain, he said, that I cannot remain to ease your last hours, but I have duties to perform in yonder city. I must not keep your delicious queen waiting, he laughed softly. So I leave you to your own devices, and those beauties. He pointed meaningly he pointed meaningly at the black shadows which swept incessantly back and forth high above. Were it not for them, I imagine that a powerful brute like yourself should live on the cross for days. Do not cherish any illusions of rescue, because I am leaving you unguarded. I have had it proclaimed that anyone seeking to take your body, living or dead, from the cross will be flayed alive together with all the members of his family in the public square. I am so firmly established in Karan that my order is as good as a regiment of guardsmen. I am leaving no guard because the vultures will not approach as long as anyone is near, and I do not wish them to feel any constraint. That is also why I brought you so far from the city. These desert vultures approach the walls no closer than this spot. And so, brave captain, farewell. I will remember you when, in an hour, Terramis lies in my arms. Blood started afresh from the pierced palms as the victim's mallet-like fist, goddamn mallet-like fist, clenched convulsively on the spike-headed, on the spike-heads. Knots and bunches of muscle stood out on his massive arms, and Conan bent his head forward and spat savagely at Constantius' face. The Wavod laughed coolly, wiped the saliva from his gorget, and reined his horse about. Remember me when the vultures are tearing at your living flesh, he called mockingly. The desert scavengers are a particularly voracious breed. I have seen men hang for hours on a cross, eyeless, earless, and scalpless, before the sharp beaks had eaten their way into their vitals. Without a backward glance, he rode away toward the city, a supple, erect figure, gleaming in burnished armor, his stolid, bearded henchmen jogging beside him. The faint, rising dust of the worn trail marked their passing. The man hung on the cross was the one touch of sentient life in the landscape that seemed desolate and deserted in the late evening. Quran, less than a mile away, might have well as been on the other side of the world, and existing in another age. Shaking the sweat out of his eyes, Conan stared blankly at the familiar terrain. On either side of the city and beyond it, stretched in the fertile meadowlands, where cattle browsed their distant fields and vineyards checkered the plain. The western and northern horizons were dotted with villages, miniature in distance. A lesser distance to the southwest, a silvery gleam marked the course of the river, or marked the course of a river. And beyond that river, a sandy desert began abruptly to stretch away and beyond the horizon. Conan stared at the expanse of empty waste shimmering tonally in the late sunlight as a trapped hawk stares at an open sky. A revulsion shook him when he glanced at the gleaming towers of Quran. The city had betrayed him, trapped him into circumstances that left him hanging on a wooden cross like a hair nailed to a tree. A red lust for vengeance swept away the thought. Curses ebbed fitfully on the man's lips, and all his universe contracted, focused, and became incorporated on the four iron spikes that held him from life and freedom. His great muscles quivered, nodding like cables. With sweat starting out on his graying skin, he sought to gain leverage to tear the nails from the wood. It was useless. They had been driven deep. Then he tried to tear his hands off the spikes. But it wasn't the knifing, uh, abysmal agony that finally caused him to cease his efforts, but the futility of it. The spike heads were broad and heavy. He could not drag them through the wounds. A surge of helplessness shook the giant for the first time in his life. He hung motionless, 
his head resting on his breast, shutting his eyes against the aching glare of the sun. A beat of wings caused him to look, just as the feathered shadow shot down from the sky. A keen beak, stabbing at his eyes, cut his cheek, and he jerked his head aside, shutting his eyes involuntarily. He shouted a croaking, desperate shout of menace, and the vultures swerved and the vultures swerved away and retreated, frightened by the sound. They resumed their wary circling above his head. Blood trickled over Conan's mouth, and he licked his lips involuntarily and spat the salty taste. Thirst assailed him savagely. He had drunk deeply of wine the night before, and no water had touched his lips since before the battle in the square at that dawn. And killing was thirsty, salt, sweaty work. He glared at the distant river as a man glares through the, through the opened grill. He thought of the gushing freshets of white water he had breasted, laved to the shoulders in liquid jade. He remembered the great horns of foaming ale and jacks of sparkling wine gulped carelessly and spilled on the tavern floor. He bit his lips to keep from bellowing in intolerable anguish as a tortured animal bellows. The sun sank, a lurid ball in a fiery sea of blood. Again, against the crimson rampart that banded the horizon, the towers of the city floated unreal as in a dream. The very sky was tinged with blood amidst his glare. He licked his blackened lips and stared with bloodshot eyes to the distant river. It seemed too crimson with blood, and the shadows crawled up from the east and black as ebony. In his dulled ears sounded the louder beat of wings. Lifting his head, he watched with the burning glare of a wolf the shadows wheeling above him. He knew that his shouts would frighten them away no longer. One dipped, dipped, lower and lower. Conan drew his head back as far as he could, waiting with terrible patience. The vulture swept in with a swift roar of wings. Its beak flashed down, ripping the skin on Conan's chin as he jerked his head aside. Then before the bird could flash away, Conan's head lunged forward on his mighty neck muscles, and with his teeth snapping like those of a wolf, locked on the bare, waddled neck. Instantly, the vulture exploded into squawking, flapping hysteria. Its thrashing wings blinded the man, and its talons ripped at his chest. But grimly he hung on, the muscles starting out in lumps on his jaws. And then the scavenger's neck bones crunched beneath those powerful teeth. With a spasmodic flutter, the bird hung limp. Conan let go, spat blood from his mouth. The other vultures, terrified by the fate of their companion, were in full flight to a distant tree, where they perched like black demons in conclave. Ferocious triumph surged through Conan's numbed brain. Life beat strongly and savagely through his veins. He could steal dill death. He still lived. Every twinge of sensation, even of agony, was a negation of death. By Mitra! Either a, voice, either a voice spoke or he suffered from hallucination. In all my life, I have never seen such a thing. Shaking the sweat and blood from his eyes, Conan saw four horsemen sitting in their steeds in the twilight and staring up at him. Three were lean, white-robed hawks, zwag-eared tribesmen without a doubt, nomads from beyond the river. The other was dressed like them in a white girdled calat and a flowing headdress which, banded about the temples with a triple circlet of braided camel hair, fell to his shoulders. But he was not a Shemite. The dust was not so thick, nor Conan's hawk-like sight so clouded that he could not perceive the man's facial characteristics. He was as tall as Conan, though not so heavy-limbed. His shoulders were broad and his supple figure was hard as steel and whalebone. A short black beard did not altogether mask the aggressive jut of his lean jaw, and gray eyes cold and piercing as a sword gleamed from the shadow of the kaf kafia. 
quieted by his restless, quieting his restless steed with a quick, sure hand, this man spoke. By Mitra, I should know this man. Aye, was the guttural accent of the Zwagir. It is the Sumerian who is captain of the Queen's Guard. She must be casting off her old favorites, muttered the rider. Who'd ever have thought it, the Queen Teramis? I'd rather have a long, bloody war. It would have given us desert folk a chance to plunder. As it is, we would never have come, clo come cl this close to the walls, only this nag. He glanced at the fine gelding, led by one of the nomads, and this dying dog. Conan lifted his head. If I could come down from this beam, I'd make a dying dog out of you, Zaporoskin thief! He rasped through blackened lips. Mitra! The knave knows me, exclaimed the other. How, knave? How do you know me? There's only one of your breed in these parts, muttered Conan. You are Olgerd Vladislav, the outlaw chief. Aye, and once the hetman of the Kozaki on the Zaporaskin River, as you have guessed. Would you like to live? Only a fool would ask that question, panted Conan. I am a hard man, said Olgerd, and toughness is the only quality I respect in a man. I shall judge if you are man or only dog after all, fit to lie here and die. If we cut him down, we may be seen from the walls, objected one of the nomads. Olgerd shook his head. The dusk is deep. Here, take this axe, Jabal, and cut down and cut down the cross at its base. If it falls forward, it will crush him, objected Jabal. I can cut it so it will fall backward, but then the shock of the fall may crack his skull and tear loose all his entrails. If he is worthy to ride with me, he'll survive it, answered Olgerd imperturbably. If not, then he doesn't deserve to live. Cut! The first impact of the battle axe against the wood and its accompanying vibrations sent lances of agony through Conan's swollen feet and hands. Again and again the blade fell, and each stroke reverberated on his bruised brain, setting his tortured nerves aquiver. But he set his teeth and made no sound. The axe cut through, the cross reeled on its splintered base and toppled backward. Conan made his whole body a solid knot of iron-hard muscle, jammed his head back hard against the wood, and held it rigid there. The beam struck the ground heavily and rebounded slightly. The impact tore his wounds and dazed him for an instant. He fought the rushing tide of blackness, sick and dizzy, but realized that the iron muscles that sheathed his vitals had saved him from permanent injury. And he, made, and he had made no sound. No blood oozed from his nostrils, and his belly muscles quivered with nausea. With a grunt of approval, Jabal bent over him with a pair of pincers used to draw horseshoe nails, and gripped the head of the spike in Conan's right hand, tearing the skin to get a grip on the deeply embedded head. The pincers were small for that work. Jabal sweated and tugged, swearing and wrestling with the stubborn iron, working it back and forth, in swollen flesh as well as in wood. Blood started, oozing over the Sumerian's fingers. He lay so still that he might have been dead, except for the spasmodic rise and fall of his great chest. The spike gave way, and Jabal held up the blood-stained thing with a grunt of satisfaction, then flung it away and bent over the other. The process was repeated, and then Jabal turned his attention to Conan's skewered feet. But the Sumerian, struggling up to a sitting posture, wrenched the pincers from his fingers and sent him staggering backward with a violent shove. Conan's hands were swollen to almost twice their normal size. His fingers felt like misshapen thumbs, and closing his hands was an agony that brought blood streaming from under his grinding teeth. But somehow, clutching the pincers clumsily with both hands, he managed to wrench out the first spike and then the other. They were not driven so deeply into the wood as the others had been. 
He rose stiffly and stood upright on his swollen, lacerated feet, swayed drunkenly, the icy sweat dripping from his face and body. Cramps assailed him, and he clamped his jaws against the desire to retch. Olgerd, watching him impersonally, motioned him toward the stolen horse. Conan stumbled toward it, and every step was a stabbing, throbbing hell that flecked his lips with bloody foam. One misshapen, groping hand fell clumsily on the saddle bow. A bloody foot somehow found the stirrup. Setting his teeth, he swung up and he almost fainted in midair, but he came down in the saddle. And as he did so, Olgerd struck the horse sharply with his whip. The startled beast reared, and the man in the saddle swayed and slumped like a sack of sand, almost unseated. Conan had wrapped a rein about each hand, holding it in place with a clasping thumb. Drunkenly, he exerted the strength of his knotted biceps, retching the horse down. It screamed, its jaw almost dislocated. One of the Shemites lifted a water flask questioningly. Olgerd shook his head. Let him wait until we get to camp. It's only ten miles. If, he, if he's fit to live in the desert, he'll live that long without a drink. The group rode like swift ghosts toward the river. Among them, Conan swayed like a drunken man in the saddle. Bloodshot eyes glazed, foam drying on his blackened lips. Ah, man, this Crucified. dude... Crucified! This... I, I mean, we've read several Conan stories by this point now. Right. And every time, my admiration for this guy just, just just soars higher and higher. And just when I think, like, there's no way. There's no way he can, like, top this. You know? <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, he's crucified in the desert. Kills a goddamn <laughs> vulture with his, with his teeth. With his teeth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, survives, yeah, getting, like, chopped down. And uses his own, like, pierced hands to, like, yank the nails out from his feet. Like, just, god damn, this dude. He's a badass. He is so badass. It's Golly. Oh, man. Also, quick shout out to the Velsius? Veli, what was his name? Uh, uh, Valerius? Olgerd? Oh, Valerius. Butters. Butters. Yeah. yeah, Butters. Shout out to Butters there. <laughs> All hamburgers, no. Captain of the Guard Conan. All hamburgers. Well, well, I don't care what you say, Queen Tamaris. Uh, if that's even who you really are, you know, I'm going to listen to Captain of the Guard Conan. <laughs> <laughs> that tears it. Valerius, you're grounded. All hamburgers. Oh, oh, oh. no hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Chaos. What? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I I like the story a lot. It's cool. Um, I guess the Conan crucifixion was like kind of controversial among Howard's readers because mm-hmm. you know we don't see Conan like ever vulnerable like this. And see, but it's that's... like you were saying. You know, we open. You know, we started the story and we're talking about you know this you know offshoot kingdom and well, well, where's Conan? And the the first time we see him. Is you know hanging from a cross like it's great. See, but that's why that's why he's great though. Is he's not, he's he's not some some Mary Sue. He's he's not just like awesome from from the get go. I mean, yes, he is awesome from the get go. But damn it, he works at it. And if you cut him, he will bleed, and then he'll just um, annihilate you with his hammer with his mallet like fists. <laughs> his mallet side, yeah. Conan's big meaty mitts. Right. It's it's like yes, he is like superhuman, but 
he he but that that just increases his capacity to suffer you know like right right uh if that were me up there dead <laughs> dead <laughs> hey what you kids fucking do it out here in my fucking desert <laughs> give me the pinches don't give him the fucking pincers. Give him the pincers. <laughs> Don't. Do you know who the true queen is? Oh. God, it's like <laughs> looking into a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> What's it been, Salome? <laughs> 15, 20 years. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, right, because we've talked about all the many rights. Like, we need. Like the like uh, Dragon Ball Z Conan crossover, um, uh-huh. we need yeah. With other stuff, okay. We 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 need, um, uh, yeah. GI Joe uh, Conan the Barbarian in the Hyperborean Age uh, PSAs. <laughs> if you're lurking in a marsh, waiting to exact re- revenge, um, eat eat. Eat, eat these frogs. These, these frogs are good eating as you just lie there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, kids. That weird elephant man might be kind of spooky, but he wants to be your friend. He wants to be Talk your friend. Talk to him. Right. Don't judge people on appearances. Yeah, right. Conan. Oh, <laughs> Barbarian. Yes, you right. Oh, God. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, well, I guess... Hey there, kids. <laughs> Don't drink too much the night before. Remember, before you go to what? bed, always drink a lot of water. Otherwise, you're going to have a bad... Worst? This is the worst this is the hangover worst scene ever put to paper. Right. Like, <laughs> I think... <laughs> that whole bit he's talking about, like, Conan remembered how he drank yeah. all that fucking water that one time. Yeah. And it's like, dude, that hits me on a level. Also, I want to shout out really quick. Mm-hmm. There's a line in Chapter 1, and I'd call it out then. Um, but I am attacked and seen because she didn't want to be a wizard in his golden tower reading the parchment yeah, skin written lame. on snakes by the blood of virgin. It's like, hey, 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 don't come at me so hot, bud. Right, exactly, Mike. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I, well, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I've shared the story before, but it bears repeating here. Yeah, like my, I don't know if it's like been my worst hangover, but um, yeah, I definitely went out and had maybe one too many maker's marks. Um and then uh, forgot I had morning practice for track. And so, yeah, trying to hurdle after a night of drinking bourbon. Uh, <laughs> and Coach Juan was like, Josh, what the fuck's wrong with you, man? Like, you're like I don't know, Coach. I, I guess I just didn't sleep well. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was, that was, yeah, that uh, times 100 is probably closer to what Conan's going through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, really quick, I've got an update to my wizard oh, mystery right. beer yeah. koozie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, out of three Floyds, I just opened a zombie dust undead pale ale. Mm. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah, I think. I gotta say, man, this can art is badass. These... Yeah, I like three Floyds. I'm really bummed. This is like the last time I'm gonna have them for a minute. You know. I mean, shoot, any more. I mean, you could probably like. Again, the worst they could say is no, but like, yeah, maybe head over to like Beer Keg and be like, look, I have this podcast. Every week we drink something different, kind of. 
So it, yeah. so like I will I will shout out your establishment by name and like you know yeah we were like chasing the like pipe dream of getting fireball whiskey or oh something like that and like shoot man let me maybe we just need like a local sponsor you know it's like hey every, every I gotta just I gotta hit up Mark Martinez I think that's all it is I that just, could be yeah be like look man yeah. help help me help you <laughs> help me help you we can we can make this work oh boy. Uh, well, yeah, I am. I am sticking with uh, this. Yeah, this Josh wine so far. Except, man, there's a there's a bottle of something in my uh, pipe tobacco slash liquor cabinet next to me that might might be calling my name. I don't know. Uh-oh. I don't know. We'll just Uh-oh. see. We'll just see. But I guess in the meantime, we can move on to chapter three: a letter to Nemedia. The savant Astraeus, traveling in the east in his never-tiring search for knowledge, wrote a letter to his friend and fellow philosopher Alchemides in his native Nemedia, which constitutes the entire knowledge of the western nations concerning the events of that period in the east, always a hazy, half-mythological region in the minds of the western folk. Astraeus wrote in part, You can scarcely conceive, my dear old friend, of the conditions now existing in this tiny kingdom since Queen Tamaris admitted Constantius and his mercenaries, an event which I described briefly in my last hurried letter. Seven months have passed since then, during which time it seems as though the devil himself had been loosed in this unfortunate realm. Tamaris seems to have gone quite mad. Whereas formerly she was famed for her virtue, justice, and tranquility, she is now notorious for qualities precisely opposite to those just enumerated. Her private life is a scandal, or perhaps private is not quite the correct term, since the queen makes no attempt to conceal the debauchery of her court. She constantly indulges in the most infamous revelries, in which the unfortunate ladies of the court are forced to join, young married women as well as virgins. She herself has not bothered to marry her paramour, Constantius, who sits on the throne beside her and reigns as her royal consort. And his officers follow his example and do not hesitate to debauch any woman they desire, regardless of her rank or station. The wretched kingdom groans under exorbitant taxation. The farms are stripped to the bone and the merchants go in rags, which are all that is left them by the tax gatherers. Nay, they are lucky if they escape with a whole skin. I sense your incredulity, good Al... Alcimides, you will fear that I exaggerate conditions in Kauron. Such conditions would be unthinkable in any of the Western countries, admittedly. But you must realize the vast difference that exists between West and East, especially this part of the East. In the first place, Kauron is a kingdom of no great size, one of the many principalities which at one time formed the eastern part of the Empire of Koth, and which later regained the independence which was theirs at a still earlier age. This part of the world is made up of these tiny realms, diminutive in comparison with the great kingdoms of the west, or the great sultanates of the farther east, but important in their control of the caravan routes, and in the wealth concentrated in them. Kauran is the most southeasternly of these principalities, bordering on the very deserts of eastern Shem. The city of Kauran is the only city of any magnitude in the realm, and stands within sight of the river which separates the grasslands from the sandy desert like a watchtower to guard the fertile meadows behind it. The land is so rich that it yields three and four crops a year, and the plains north and west of the city are dotted with villages. 
To one accustomed to the great plantations and stock farms of the West, it is strange to see these tiny fields and vineyards. Yet wealth in grain and fruit pours from them as from a horn of plenty. The villagers are agriculturists, nothing else. Of a mixed aboriginal race, they are unwarlike, unable to protect themselves, and forbidden the possession of arms. Dependent wholly upon the soldiers of the city for protection, they are helpless under these conditions. So the savage revolt of the rural sections, which would be a certainty in any Western nation, is here impossible. They toil supinely under the iron hand of Constantius, and his black-bearded Shemites ride incessantly through the fields, with whips in their hands like the slave drivers of the black serfs who toil in the plantations of southern Zingara. Nor do the people of the city fare any better. Their wealth is stripped from them, their fairest daughters taken to glut the insatiable lust of Constantius and his mercenaries. These men are utterly without mercy or compassion. Possessed of all the characteristics our armies learn to abhor in our wars against the Shemitish allies of Argos. Inhuman cruelty, lust, and wild beast ferocity. The people of the city of Arkaran's ruling caste, predominantly Hyborian, and valorous and warlike, but the treachery of their queen delivered them into the hands of their oppressors. The Shemites are the only armed force in Kauran, and the most hellish punishment is inflicted on any Karani found possessing weapons. A systematic persecution to destroy the young Karani men able to bear arms has been savagely pursued. Many have ruthlessly been slaughtered, others sold as slaves to the Turanians. Thousands have fled the kingdom and either entered the service of other rulers or become outlaws lurking in numerous bands among the borders. Holy shit, this letter. Mark, I'm going <laughs> to tag you in, <laughs> tag buddy. Tag out, buddy. It's all right. <laughs> a letter from the fucking Nestor, it would appear. <laughs> a letter from unknown Kadath. <laughs> At present, there is some possibility of invasion from the desert, which is inhabited by tribes of Shemitish nomads. The mercenaries of Constantius are men of, from from the Shemitish cities in the west, Pelishtim, Anakim, and Akarim, and are ardently hated by the Zwagirs and other wandering tribes. As you know, good Alcimiades, the countries of these barbarians are divided by the western meadowlands, which stretch to the distant ocean, and in which rise the cities of the town dwellers. In the eastern deserts, there are the lean nomads that hold sway. Their incessant warfare between the dwellers of the cities and the dwellers of the desert. The Zwagirs have fought and raided Quran for centuries without success, but they resent its conquest by their western kin. It is rumored that their natural antagonism is being fomented by the man who was formerly the captain of the Queen's Guard, and who somehow escaped the hate of Constantius, who actually had him upon a cross, fled to the nomads. He is called Conan, and is himself a barbarian, one of those gloomy Sumerians whose ferocity our soldiers have more than once learned to their bitter cost. It is rumored that he has become the right-hand man of Olgerd Vladislav, a Cossack adventurer who wandered down from the northern steppes and made himself the chief of a band of Zwagir. There is also rumor that this band has increased vastly in the last few months, and that Olgerd, incited no doubt by this Sumerian, is even considering a raid on Koran. It cannot be anything more than a raid, as the Zwagirs are without siege machines or the knowledge of 
of investing a city, and it has been proven repeatedly in the past that these nomads lose their formation, or rather their lack of formation, are no match to, in hand-to-hand -hand fighting for the well-disciplined, fully armored warriors of the Shemitish... God, I can't say that word. Shemitish cities. The natives of Quran would perhaps be welcome in this conquest, since the nomads could deal with them no more harshly than their present masters, and even total extermination would be preferable than to be suffering or than the suffering they have to endure. But they are so cowed and helpless that they could give no aid to the invaders. Their plight is most wretched. Teramis, apparently possessed of a demon, stops at nothing. She has abolished the worship of Ishtar and turned the temple into a shrine of idolatry. She has destroyed the ivory goddess which these eastern Hyborians worship, and which, inferior as it is to the true religion of Mitra, which we as western nations recognize, it is still superior to the devil worship of the Shemites, and filled the temple of Ishtar with obscene images of every sort, gods and goddesses of the night, portrayed in all salacious and perverse poses, and with the revolting characteristics that it, that it that a degenerate brain could conceive. Many of these images are to be identified as foul deities of the Shemites, the Turanians, the Vengeans, and the Kitaeans. But others are reminiscent of the hideous half-remembered antiquity, vile shapes forgotten except in the most obscure legends, where the queen gained knowledge of them I dare not hazard a guess, or she has instituted human sacrifice, and since her mating with Constantius, no less than 500 men, women, and children have been emoliated. Some of these have died on the altar, and she has set up in the temple herself wielding the sacrificial dagger, but most have met a more horrible doom. <sighs> Teramis is placed by some sort of monster in the temple. What is it? What it is and whence it came, none knows. But shortly after she had crushed the desperate revolt of soldiers against Constantius, she spent a night alone in the desecrated temple, alone except a dozen bound captives, and shuddering and the shuddering people saw thick, foul-smelling smoke curling from the dome, heard all night the frenetic chanting of the queen and the agonized cry of her tortured captives, and toward dawn another voice mingled with these sounds a strident, inhuman croaking that froze the blood of all who had heard. In the full dawn, Teramis reeled drunkenly from the temple, her eyes blazing in de demoniac triumph. The captives were never seen again, nor the croaked voice heard. But there is a room in the temple in which none ever goes but the queen, driving a human sacrifice before her. And this victim is never seen again. All know that in the grim chamber lurks a monster from the black night of ages, which devours the shrieking humans, Teramis delivers up to it. I can no longer think of her as a mortal woman, but as a rabid she-fiend crouching on her blood-fouled lair amongst bones and fragments of her victims with taloned crimson fingers. That the gods allow her to <laughs> pursue her awful course unchecked almost shakes my faith in divine justice. When I compare her present conduct with the most deportment when I first came to Quran seven months ago, I am confused with bewilderment, and almost inclined on the belief held by many of the people that a demon has possessed the body of Teramis. A young soldier, Valerius, had another belief. He believed that a witch had assumed a form identical to that of Quran's adored leader. He believed that Teramis had been spirited away in the night and confined in some dungeon, and that this being ruling in her place was but a female sorcerer. He swore that he would find a way to, that he would find the real queen if she still lived, but I fear greatly that he himself has fallen victim to the cruelties of Constantius. 
He was implicated in the revolt of the palace guards, escaped and remained in hiding for some time, stubbornly refusing to seek safety abroad. It was during this time that I encountered him and he told me his beliefs. But he has disappeared, as so many have, whose fates one dared not conjecture, and I fear has been apprehended by the spies of Constantius. But I conclude this letter and slip it out of the city by means of swift carrier pigeon. That is a buff pigeon to carry this much yeah. goddamn writing on it. <laughs> <laughs> Which will carry it to the post whence I purchased it on the borders of Koth. By rider and camel train will it eventually come to you. I must haste before dawn. It is late. The stars gleam whitely on the garden roofs of Quran. A shuddering silence envelops the city, in which I hear the throb of a sullen drum in the distant temple. I doubt not that Teramis is there, concocting more devilry. But, Wee. yeah, indeed. Okay, also dr drink, drink for that. Also move. drink, yes. Verbose, this Astraeus guy. <laughs> like the true, like, quasi-Greek that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but the savant was incorrect in his conjecture concerning the whereabouts of the woman he called teramis the girl whom the world knew as queen of karan stood in a dungeon lighted only by a flickering torch which played on her features etching the diabolical cruelty of her beautiful countenance on the bare stone floor before her crouched a figure whose nakedness was scarcely covered with tattered rags this figure Salome touched contemptuously with the upturned toe of her gilded sandal and smiled vindictively as her victim shrank away. Do you not love my caresses, sweet sister? Teramis was still beautiful in spite of her rags and the imprisonment and the abuse of seven weary months. She did not reply to her sister's taunts, but bent her head as one grown accustomed to mockery. This resignation did not appease Salome, she bit her red lip and stood tapping the toe of her shoe against the floor as she frowned down at the passive figure. Salome was clad in the barbaric splendor of a woman of Shushan. Jewels glittered in the torchlight on her gilded sandals, on her gold breastplates, and the slender chains that held them in place. Gold anklets clanged, clashed as she moved. Jeweled bracelets weighted her bare arms. Her tall coiffure was that of a Shemedish woman, and jade pendants hung from gold hoops in her ears flashing and sparkling with each impatient movement of her haughty head. A gem-crusted girdle supported a, sh a silk skirt so transparent that it was in the nature of a cynical mockery of convention. Suspended from her shoulders and trailing down her back hung a darkly scarlet cloak, and this was thrown carelessly over the crook of one arm in the bundle that that arm supported. Salome stooped suddenly, and with her free hand grasped her sister's disheveled hair and forced back the girl's head to stare into her eyes. Termis met that tigerish glare without flinching. "'You are not so ready with your tears as formerly, sweet sister,' muttered the witch girl. "'You shall wring no more tears from me,' answered Termis. "'Too often you have reveled in the spectacle of, of the Queen of Quran sobbing for mercy on her knees. I know that you have spared me only to torment me. That is why you have limited your tortures to such torments as neither slay nor permanently disfigure. But I fear you no longer.' You have strained out the last vial or the last vestige of hope, fright and shame from me. Slay me and be done with it, for I have shed my last tear for your enjoyment, you she devil from hell. You flatter yourself, my dear sister, purred Salome. So far it is only your handsome body that I have caused to suffer, only your pride and self esteem that I have crushed. 
You forget that, unlike myself, you are capable of mental torment. I have observed this when I have regaled you with narratives concerning the comedies I have enacted with some of your stupid subjects. But this time I have brought more vivid proof of these farces. Did you know that Kralides, your faithful counselor, has come skulking back from Tehran and, and been captured? Teramis turned pale. What? What have you done to him? For answer, Salome drew the mysterious bundle from under her cloak. She shook off the silken swathings and held it up. The head of a young man, the features frozen in a convulsion as if death had come in the midst of inhuman agony. Tamaris cried out as if a blade had pierced her heart. Oh, Ishtar, Coralides! Aye, he was seeking to stir up the people against me, poor fool, telling, him, telling them that Conan spoke the truth when he said I was not Teramis. How would the people rise up against the Falcon's Shemites? With sticks and pebbles? Bah! Dogs are eating his headless body in the marketplace, and this foul carrion shall be cast into the sewer to rot. How, sister, she paused, smiling down at her victim, have you discovered that you still have unshed tears? Good. I reserve the mental torment for the last. Hereafter I shall show you many such sights as this. Standing there in the torchlight with a severed head in her hand, she did not look like anything ever born by a human woman, in spite of her awful beauty. Teramis did not look up. She lay face down on the slimy floor, her slim body shaken in sobs of agony, beating her clenched hands against the stones. Salome sauntered toward the door, her anklets clashing at each step, her ear pendants winking in the torch glare. A few moments later, she emerged from a door under a sullen arch that led into a court, which in turn opened upon a winding alley. A man standing there turned toward her, a giant Shemite, with somber eyes and shoulders like a bull, his great black beard falling over his mighty silver-mailed breast. She wept. His rumble was like that of a bull, deep, low-pitched, and stormy. He was the general of the mercenaries, one of the few even of Constantius' associates who knew the secret of the Queen of Quran. Aye, Kumbanagash, there are whole sections of her sensibilities that I have not touched. When one sense is dulled by continual laceration, I will discover a newer, more poignant pain. Here, dog. A trembling, shambling figure in rags, filth and matted hair approached, one of the beggars that slept in the alleys and open courts. Salome tossed the head to him. Here, deaf one, cast that in the nearest sewer. Make the sign with your hands, Kumbanagash, he cannot hear. The general complied, and the tousle headed bobbed, and the tousle, and the tousle, tousle, yeah, sorry, got, pfft. fuck Josh, zombies. Zombies. <laughs> the general complied, and the tousled head bobbed, as the young man turned painfully away. Why do you keep up this farce, rumbled Kumbanagash. You are so firmly established on the throne, nothing can unseat you. What if Korani fools learn the truth? They can do nothing. Proclaim yourself in your true identity. Show them their beloved ex-queen, and cut off her head in the public square. Not yet, good Kumbanagash. The arched door slammed on the hard accents of Salome, the stormy reverberations of Kumbanagash. The mute beggar crouched in the courtyard, and there was none to see that the hands which held the severed head were quivering, strongly brown, sinewy hands, strangely incongruous with the bent body and filthy tatters. 
I knew it. It was a fierce, vibrant whisper, scarcely audible. She lives. Oh, Kralides, your martyrdom was not in vain. They have her locked in that dungeon. Oh, Ishtar, if you love true men, aid me now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. It's just... (sighs) Man, just... Just when you think it can't get any worse. <laughs> Captain Butters is on the job. Captain Butters is... Oh, wait. Spoilers. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the longest goddamn text message ever. Right. Leave it to the oh, goddamn God. boomers. Do you know, send a 10-page text message and you start replying halfway through and... You see the like dot 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 like oh god he's still he's still typing oh geez just send it just send it already man <laughs> my Arnold Schwarzeneggerian sized homing pigeon that I bought <laughs> gonna carry this fucking four pages of text to you come with me if you want this letter to be delivered <laughs> do it do it now send your letter I'm right here do it. <laughs> <laughs> Come on! <laughs> what are you doing? I'm right here. Send it. <laughs> oh man! But yeah, things uh, things in the kingdom of Karan, um, not not good, not good. And only seven months, man. Jeez, you want to talk about just <laughs> burning the candle at both ends? Um, yeah, no, like subtle. You know, not like. Yeah, that whole thing, like, uh, uh, boiling a frog in the pot. Like, if you just, like, dump it right. in and it's, 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 and it's already boiling, it's, you know, it'll, it'll jump back out. But you just, like, uh, slowly increase the temperature. No, none of that. Like, since day one, <laughs> just horrible. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, what was it, like, the dark comedies or the, or the farces. Um, yeah, the the comedies that yeah, yeah, comedies yeah. played out just oh man, Woof. If, if if only man, if there were only someone who could ride into town and free the poor Karani from this oppression. If only there was somebody. <laughs> if only you'd do it for Randolph Scott. <laughs> you'd do it for Randolph Scott. <laughs> I do have a slight update um, to my oh, okay. to my religious cup because, yeah, what, what, what they say like I know they say beer before liquor gets sick quicker, but I haven't heard like wine before liquor. I, I don't know if that changes the equation or not. Um, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go next with a little bit with a little bit of uh, yeah a little bit of Buffalo Trace because I'm Ooh, feeling frisky feeling all right. frisky here. All right, right so. on. I'm doing um. Zombie iced undead double pale ale. Oh yeah, yeah. I think we eight point five. Yeah, I we must have gotten the same variety pack because yeah, that, that like zombie ice and the lunar something or other lunar that, throne zombie dust yeah, lunar and, bla- and backmasking. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It, it's got to be the same. It's got to be the same. But hey, here here's on you, buddy. Cheers. Fuck you. Oh no, the fucking Uh-oh. tab broke. Oh no. Oh no. Oh, shit. Okay, there it goes. Stuck in my thumb and said, oh, what a good boy am I. Cheers, good buddy. (laughs) Cheers, good buddy. (laughs) Ooh, that's good. Ooh, that's really good. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that that was a solid solid variety pack. I'm not going to lie. 
And you're just doing straight bourbon? Uh, yeah, well, and I, I got I got my water bottle off to the side, so I'm, okay. I'm being I'm, I'm being responsible. So, little bourbon, chase it with water. We're good to go. So, um, talking about chasing chasing things down here, I think I think man, we're we're, we're maybe reaching the the what would this be the rising action? You know, we, we keep going, we're going, we're we're well past the inciting incident. I know that much, but right, right, right. Here we are. Here we are next for chapter four, <laughs> Wolves of the Desert. Ow! Ow! <laughs> hey, this is three dog. Ow! I don't know if you've been hearing anything going on in the kingdom of Kauron, but I'm hearing some weird stuff about Queen Tamaris. <laughs> A okay. friend from Samaria just went and got himself crucified, but I hear he's still fighting the good fight. The Until good next time, children. I just got a letter from my good friend Astraides, and <laughs> he would not believe what story I'm hearing coming out of Calrón. <laughs> Until next time, children. This is Three Dog. By the love of Mitra, children, this is Three Dog. (laughs) Uh, See, look, there's another one, man. Another Conan crossover that we need. But, uh, all right, anyway, here we are. Chapter four. You know, I always grab that fucking Grognak battle axe and um, armor from that um, uh, uh, comic shop. Yeah, man. Number four, yeah. So good, so good. Okay, all right. Here we go. Anyway. Wolves of the Desert, chapter four. Olgerd Vladislav filled his jeweled goblet with crimson wine from a golden jug and thrust the vessel across the ebony table to Conan the Sumerian. Olgerd's apparel would have satisfied the vanity of any Zaporaskin hetman. His collat was of white silk, with pearls sewn on the bosom, girdled at the waist with a bakariat belt. Oh boy, I picked a bad time to switch to bourbon. <laughs> Its skirts were drawn back to reveal his wide silken breeches, tucked into short boots of soft green leather, adorned with a golden thread. On his head was a green silk turban, wound about a spired helmet chased with gold. His only weapon was a broad, curved kerchief knife in an ivory sheath girdled high on his left hip, Kozak fashion. Throwing himself back in his gilded chair with its carven eagles, Olgerd spread his booted legs before him and gulped down the sparkling wine noisily. To his splendor, the huge Sumerian opposite him offered a strong contrast with his square-cut black mane, brown scarred countenance, and burning blue eyes. He was clad in black mesh mail. The only glitter about him was the gold was, was the broad gold buckle of the belt which supported his sword in its worn leather scabbard. They were alone in the silk-walled tent, which hung with gilt-worked tapestries and littered with rich carpets and velvet cushions, the loot of the caravans. From the outside came a low, incessant murmur, the sound that always accompanies a great throng of men, in camp or otherwise, and the occasional gust of desert wind rattled the palm leaves. "'Today in the shadow, tomorrow in the sun,' quoth Olgerd, loosening his crimson girdle a trifle and reaching again for the wine jug. "'That's the way of life.' Once I was a hitman on the Zaporoska. Now I'm a desert chief. 
Seven months ago, you were hanging on a cross outside Quran. Now you're, uh, now you're a lieutenant to the most powerful raider between Tehran and the Western Meadows. You should be thankful to me. For recognizing my usefulness? Conan laughed and lifted the jug. When you allow the elevation of a man, one can be sure that you'll profit by his advancement. I've earned everything I've won with my blood and sweat. He glanced at the scars on the inside of his palms. There were scars, too, on his body. Scars that had not been there seven months ago. You fight like a regiment of devils, conceded Ulgerd. But don't get to thinking that you've had anything to do with the recruits who've swarmed to join us. It was our success at raiding, guided by my wit, that brought them in. These nomads have always been looking for a successful leader, leader to follow, and they may have more faith in a foreigner than one of their own race. There is no limit to what we can accomplish. We have 11,000 men now. In another year, we may have three times that number. We've contended ourselves so far with raids on Turanian outposts, and the city-states to the west with 30 or 40,000 men will raid no longer. We'll invade and conquer, and establish ourselves as rulers. I'll be Emperor of Shem yet, and you'll be my vizier, so long as you can carry out my orders unquestioningly. In the meantime, I think we'll ride eastward and storm the Turanian outpost at Vizek, where the caravans pay their tolls. Conan shook his head. I think not. Olgard glared, his quick temper irritated. What do you mean? You think not? I do the thinking for this army. There are enough men in this band now for my purpose, answered the Sumerian. I'm sick of waiting. I have a score to settle. Oh! Olgard scowled and gulped wine, then grinned. Still thinking of that cross, eh? Well, I like a good hater, but that can wait. Hate, 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 hate. Drink hate, for the hate, haters. Hate, 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 hate. Drink for the haters. You told me once you'd aid me in taking Karan, said Conan. Yes, but that was before I began to see the full possibilities of our power, answer, answered Olgerd. I was only thinking of the loot in the city. I don't want to waste our strength unprofitably. Karan is too strong a nut for us to crack. Maybe in a year. Within the week, answered Conan, and the Kozak stared at the certainty in his voice. Listen, said Olgerd. Even if I were willing to throw away my men on such a harebrained attempt, what could you expect? Do you think these wolves would, could besiege and take a city like Quran? There'll be no siege, answered the Sumerian. I know how to draw Constantius out into the plain. And then, and what then? cried Olgerd with an oath. In the arrow play, our horsemen would have the worst of it, for their armor is Vashuri is the better. And then, when it came to our sword strokes, the close-marshaled ranks of the trained swordsmen would cleave through our loose lines and scatter the men like chaff before the wind. Not if there were three thousand desperate Hyborian horsemen fighting in a solid wedge such as I could teach them, answered Conan. And where would you secure three thousand Hyborians, answered Olgerd with vast sarcasm. Will you conjure them out of the air? I have them, answered the Sumerian imperturbably. Three thousand men of Karan camp at the oasis of Akril awaiting my orders. What? <laughs> Olgord glared like a startled wolf. Aye, men who have fled from the tyranny of Constantius. Most of them have been living the lives of outlaws in the deserts east of Karan, 
and are gaunt and hard and desperate as man-eating tigers. One of them will be a match for any three squat mercenaries. It takes oppression and hardship to stiffen men's guts and put the fire of hell into their thews. They were broken up into small bands. All they needed was a leader. They believed the word I sent them by my riders, and assembled at the oasis and put themselves at my disposal. All this without my knowledge. A feral light began to gleam in Olgerd's eye. He twitched at his weapon girdle. It was I they wished to follow, not you. And what did you tell these outcasts to gain their allegiance? There was a dangerous ring in Olgerd's voice. I told them that I'd use this horde of desert wolves to help them destroy Constantius and give Karan back into the hands of its citizens. You fool, whispered Olgerd. Do you deem yourself chief already? The men were on their feet, facing each other across the ebony board, devil lights dancing in Olgerd's cold gray eyes, a grim smile on the Sumerian's hard lips. I'll have you torn between four palm trees, said the Cossack. Er, wow, yes, said the Cossack calmly. Smart kills it. <laughs> Call the men and bid them do it, challenged Conan. See if they obey you. Baring his teeth in a snarl, Olgard lifted his hand, then paused. There was something about the confidence in the Sumerian's dark face that shook him, and his eyes began to burn like those of a wolf. You scum of the western hills, you how have you dared to seek to undermine my power? I didn't have to, answered Conan. You lied when you said I had nothing to do with bringing in the new recruits. I had everything to do with it. They took your orders, but they fought for me. There is not room for two chiefs of the Zwagirs. They know I am the stronger man. I understand them better than you, and they me, because I am a barbarian too. And what will they say when you ask them to fight for Quran? asked Olgerd sardonically. They'll follow me. I'll promise them a camel train of gold from the palace. Kauron will be willing to pay that as a gerdon for getting rid of Constantius. After that, I'll lead them against the Turanians as you have planned. They want loot, and they'd as soon fight Constantius for it as anybody. In Olgerd's it eyes grew a recognition of defeat. In his red dreams of empire, he had missed what was going on about him. Happenings and events that seemed meaningless before now flashed into his mind with their true significance. Be bringing their realization that Conan spoke no idle boast, the giant blackmailed figure before him was the real chief of the Zwagir. Not if you die, muttered Olgerd, and his hand flickered towards the silt. But a quick stro but as quick as the stroke of a great cat, Conan's arm shot across the table and locked his fingers on Constantia's forearm. Or Jesus Christ, on Olgerd's <laughs> forearm. Wow, Mark. Um, there was a snap of breaking bones, and for a tense instant the scene held. The men facing each other as motionless images, perspiration starting on Olgerd's forehead. Conan laughed and eased his grip on the broken arm. Are you fit to live, Olgerd? His smile did not alter as the corded muscles rippling, rippled in nodding ridges along his forearm and the fingers around into the Cossack's quivering flesh. There was a sound of broken bones grating together, and Olgerd's face turned the color of ashes. Blood oozed from his lip where his teeth sank, but he uttered no sound. With a laugh, Conan released him and drew back, and the Kozak swayed and caught the table edge with his good hand to steady himself. I give you life, Olgerd, as you gave it to me, said Conan tranquilly, though it was for your own ends that you took me down from the cross. It was a bitter test you gave me then. 
You couldn't have endured it. Neither could anyone but a western barbarian. Take your horse and go. It's tied behind the tent, and food and water are in the saddlebags. None will see you're going, but go quickly. There's no room for a fallen chief on the desert. If the warriors see you, maimed and, dep and deposed, they'll never let you leave the camp alive. Olger did not reply. Slowly, without a word, he turned and stalked across and stalked across the tent, then the flap through, Jesus, through the flapped opening. <laughs> Unspeaking, he climbed into the saddle where a great white stallion that stood tethered there in the shade of the spreading palm tree, and unspeaking, with his broken arm thrust in his bosom into the bosom of his calot, he reined the steed about and rode eastward into the open desert, out of the life of the people of the Zwagir. Inside the tent, Conan emptied the wine jug, smacked his lips with relish, tossed the empty vessel into the corner and braced his belt and strode out through the front opening, halting for a moment to let his gaze sweep across the lines of camel hair tents that stretched before him, and the white-robed figures that moved along them, arguing, singing, mending bridles, and wedding toll wars. His voice lifted like thunder and carried to the farthest confines of the encampment. Aye, you dogs, sharpen your ears and listen. Gather around here. I have a tale to tell you. Bum, it's just bum, like that. Just like that. Just like yep. Man, so like that. That's also you know that's the, that's a theme that we've talked about constantly with all these Conan stories. Like civilization and wealth makes you soft and weak. Uh, right. Hardship and being a barbarian makes you strong and tough. And even this guy Olgerd, you know, like he was he was a desert barbarian. You know, he was out there raiding and doing all the stuff. Uh, but he let it go to his head, you know, and look at him all dressed up like a fancy boy, uh, with his gold, golden green turban and his, and his silken, uh, pantaloons. <laughs> and his Bakariot belt. Yeah, <laughs> right. This, look at him. Little pearl encrusted chest piece. Yeah, nerd. Yeah, pearl What a, exactly, exactly. Fucking um, dandy. And the, right. And man, just. Conan going, oops, broke your ulna. Now get out of here. <laughs> JK, GTFO fool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so yes, this is it. This is it. You know, we're... we're uh, Conan spent those seven months not only healing. Like, God, I just... I can't getting, even imagine. Getting strong, too. You know, like, getting strong again, like, getting right. to the gym, like, getting his lats back. Yeah. Right, exactly. You know, like, and it's been, I mean, owning up con confession time, I have not lifted in quite some time. I, I can feel myself getting soft and decadent and, uh, <laughs> ooh, look Civilized. at me with my green leather boots. <laughs> 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 and I'm feeling it, man. I'm feeling the call of the iron uh, down in the basement. It's like, all right, son of a bitch, I'm gonna have to get back out there and get get my squats going again, get my bench up again, start start, start deadlifting again because it's yeah. Ah, I feel it. I feel soft and weak and pathetic. And damn it, I'm I'm gonna be a warrior scholar here. <laughs> you got the shame of the holidays coming, man. Like nothing. Nothing oh, reinforces that need to lift. Nothing hits that call to iron more than like, I ate too much, way too much this week. I got way too drunk, way too much this week. Yeah, right. All in the name of good times and yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you know, you're like coming around to it. Yeah. It'll happen. Yeah. 
But also, man, just this whole like, as he's doing all of this, he's he's mustering his forces because he was the goddamn captain of the guard. He had all these loyal troops under his command. Uh, and man, I think Mark, dare I say, dare, 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 uh, that Conan could be assembling a posse at the oasis. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he is. <laughs> I guess he is. How, how do you play Foggy Mountain Breakdown on a like battle horn? It's <laughs> <laughs> Benny Hill Yakety Sax. Yeah. I think it's the compromise there, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh man, that's awesome. Oh shit. Well, and I, yeah, like I made it through that last chapter. Uh, I was feeling a little frisky. Um, switched over to some Buffalo Trace, but I thought better of myself. I was like, okay, I'll have one little like snort of that, but I should probably just stick to wine. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm back. I'm back with the old Josh Heritage Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, are you still working your way through your mystery six pack? Um, yeah, the last one I got is the mystery is the uh, Lunar Throne. So that is oh, what okay. I will be yeah. drinking now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alrighty, well, cheers on you, buddy. Cheers, good buddy. That'll play. Yeah, yeah, that that was a good one. That's a good yeah. one when I had it. So. Uh, Alright, well I guess here here we are. We're going to have to see, you know, just like building, building that sweet, sweet tension and then maybe uh, hopefully a bloody gross but just righteous climax is is coming our way so here we are chapter five now the voice from the crystal in a chamber in a tower near the city wall a group of men listened attentively to the words of one of their number they were young men but hard and sinewy with a bearing that comes only to men rendered desperate by adversity they were clad in male shirts and worn leather swords hung at their girdles for months, I have haunted the outskirts of the palace, playing the part of a deaf beggar. At last, I learned what I had believed, that our queen was a prisoner in the dungeons that adjoined the palace. I watched my opportunity and captured a, a Shemitish jailer, knocked him senseless as he left the courtyard late one night, dragged him into a cellar nearby and questioned him. Before he died, he told me what I have just told you, and what we have suspected all along, that the woman ruling Kauran is a witch. Salome. Teramis, he said, is imprisoned in the lowest dungeon. This invasion of the Zwagirs gives us the opportunity we sought. What Conan means to do, who I cannot say. Perhaps he merely wishes... <laughs> Sorry, it's so good. <laughs> Perhaps he merely wishes vengeance on Constantius. Perhaps he intends seeking the, sacking the city and destroying it. He is a barbarian and no one can understand their minds. But this is what we must do. Rescue Teramis while the battle rages. Constantius will march out into the plain to give battle. Even now his men are mounting. He will do this because there is not sufficient food in the city to stand a siege. Conan burst out of the desert so suddenly that there was no time to bring in supplies. And the Samaria is equipped for a siege. Scouts have reported the Zwagiris have siege engines, built undoubtedly according to the instruction of Conan, who learned all the arts of war inside um, among the western nations. Constantius does not desire a long siege, so he will march with his warriors into the plain, where he expects to scatter Conan's forces at one stroke. He will leave only a few hundred men in the city, and they will be on the walls and in the towers commanding the gates. The prison will be left all but unguarded. 
When we have freed Teramis, our next actions will depend upon circumstances. If Conan wins, we must show Teramis to the people and bid them rise. They will! Oh, they will! With their bare hands, they are enough to overpower the Shemites left in the city and close the gates both against the mercenaries and the nomads. Neither must get within the walls. Then we will parlay with Conan. He was always loyal to Teramis. If he knows the truth and she appeals to him, I believe he will spare the city. If, which is more probable, Constantius prevails, then Conan is routed. We must steal out of the city with the queen and seek safety in flight. Is all clear? They replied with one voice. Then let us loosen our blades and our scabbards. Commend our souls to Ishtar and start for the prison, for the mercenaries are already marching through the southern gate. This was true. The dawn light glinted on the peaked helmets pouring in the steady stream through the broad arch on the bright housings of the chargers. This would be a battle of horsemen, such as is only possible in the lands of the east. The riders flowed through the gates like a river of steel, somber figures in black and silver mail with their curled beards and hooked noses, and their inexorable eyes in which glimmered the fatality of their race, the utter lack or doubt of mercy. The streets and the walls were lined, through the th were lined with throngs of people who watched silently as these warriors of an alien race riding forth to defend their native city. There was no sound. Dully, expressionless, they watched. Those gaunt people in shabby garments, their caps in their hands. In a tower that overlooked the broad street and led to the southern gate, Salome lolled on a velvet couch, cynically watching Constantius as he settled his broadsword belt across his lean hips and drew on his gauntlets. They were alone in the chamber. Outside, the rhythmical clacking of harness and shuffle of horses' hooves welled up in the gold-barred casements. Before nightfall, quoth Constantius, giving a twirl to his thin mustache, you'll have some captives defeat that temple devil. Do, does it not grow weary of soft city-bred city flesh? Perhaps it would relish the harder thews of a desert man. Take care you do not fall prey to a fiercer beast than Thog, warned the girl. Do not forget who it is that leads these desert animals. I am not likely to forget, he answered. That is one reason why I am advancing to meet him. The dog is fought in the west and knows the art of siege. My scouts had some trouble approaching his columns, for his outriders have eyes like hawks. But they did get close enough to see the engines he is dragging on oxcart wheels drawn by camels. Catapults, rams, ballistas, mangonels, by Ishtar. He must have had 10,000 men working day and night for a month. Where he got the material for their construction is more than I can understand. Perhaps he has a treaty with the Turanians and gets supplies from them. Anyway, they won't do him any good. I've fought the desert wolves before, an exchange of arrows for a while, in which the armor of my warriors protects them. Then a charge of my squadron sweep through the loose swarms of nomads, wheel and sweep back, scattering them to the four winds. I'll ride through the south gate before sunset, with hundreds of naked captives staggering at my horse's tail. We'll hold a fete tonight in the great square. My soldiers delight in the flaying of their enemies alive. Well, we'll have a wholesale skinning, and make these weak-kneed townsfolk watch. As for Conan, it will afford me immense pleasure, if we take him alive, to impale him on the palace steps. Skin as many as you like, answered Salome indifferently. I would like a dress made of human hide. But at least a hundred captives you must give to me, for the altar and for Thaug. It shall be done, answered Constantius, 
With his gauntleted hand, it brushed back the thin hair from his high, bald forehead, burned dark by the sun. For victory, and the fair honor of Teramis, he said sardonically, and taking his visored helmet under his arm, he lifted his hand in a salute and strode clanking from the chamber. His voice drifted back, harshly lifting orders to his officers. Salome leaned back on the couch, yawning, and stretched herself like a great supple cat and called, Zang! A cat-footed priest, with features like yellow parchment stretched over a skull, entered noiselessly. Salome turned to an ivory pedestal on which stood two crystal, glo two crystal globes, and taking from the, the smaller one, she handed it. She handed the glistening, the glistening sphere to the priest. Ride with Constantius, she said. Give me news of the battle. Go. The skull-faced man bowed low and, hiding the globe under his dark mantle, hurried from the chamber. Outside the city, there was no sound, except the clank of hooves, and after a while, the clang of the closing gate. Salome mounted a wide marble stair that led to the flat, canopied marble battlement roof. She was above all the other buildings in the city, and the streets were deserted. The great square in front of the palace was empty. In normal times, folks shunned the grim temple, whose... which... Folks shunned the grim temple, which rose on the opposite side of the square, but now the town looked like a dead city. Only on the southern wall and the roof that overlooked it was there any sign of life. The people massed thickly. They made no demonstration, did not know whether to, be ho whether to hope for victory or defeat of Constantius. Victory meant further misery under his intolerable rule. Defeat probably meant the sack of the city and red massacre. No word had come from Conan. They did not know what to expect at his hands. They remembered that he was a barbarian. <laughs> the squadrons of the mercenaries were moving out into the plain. In the distance, just this side of the river, other dark masses were moving, barely recognizable as men on horses. Objects dotted the farther bank. Conan had not brought his siege engines across the river, apparently fearing an attack in the midst of the crossing. But he had crossed with his full force of horsemen. The sun rose and struck a glints of fire from the dark multitudes. The squadrons from the city broke into a gallop. A deep roar reached the ears of the people on the wall. The rolling masses merged, intermingled. At that distance, it was a tangled confusion in which no details stood out. Charge and countercharge were not to be identified. Clouds of dust rose from the plains under the stamping hooves, veiling the action. Through these swirling clouds, masses of riders loomed, appearing and disappearing, and spears flashed. Salome shrugged her, her shoulders and descended the stair. The palace lay silent. All the slaves were on the wall, gazing vainly southward with the citizens. She entered the chamber where she had talked with Constantius, and approached the pedestal, noting that the crystal globe was clouded, shot with bloody streaks of crimson. She bent over the ball, swearing under her breath. Zang! she called. Zang! Mists swirled in the sphere, resolving themselves into billowing dust clouds through which black figures rushed unrecognizably. Steel glinted like lightning in the murk. Then the face of Zang leaped into startling distinctness. It was as if the wide eyes gazed up at Salome. Blood trickled from a gash in the skull-like head. The skin was gray with sweat-runneled dust. The lips parted, writhing. To other ears than Salome's, it would have seemed that the face in the crystal contorted silently. But sound to her came as plainly as er, to came as plainly from those ashen lips as if the priest had been in the same room with her instead of miles away, shouting into the smaller crystal. Only the gods of darkness knew what unseen magic filaments linked together these shimmering spheres. 
Salome, shrieked the bloody head. Salome! I hear, she cried. Speak, how goes the battle? Doom is upon us, screamed the skull-like <laughs> apparition. Quran is lost, I, my horse is down, and I cannot win clear. Men are falling around me, they're dying like flies in silvered mail. Stop yammering and tell me what happened, she cried harshly. We rode at the desert dogs and they came out on to meet us, yowled the priest. Arrows flew in clouds between the hosts and the nomads wavered. Constantius ordered a charge and even ranks we thundered upon them. Then the masses of their horde opened right and left and through the cleft rushed 10,000 Hyborian horsemen whose presence we had not even suspected. Men of Quran mad with hate, big men in full armor on massive horses. On a solid wedge of steel, they smote us like a thunderbolt. They split our ranks asunder before we knew what was upon us, and then the desert man men swarmed on us from either flank. They have ripped apart our ranks, broken and scattered us. It was the trick of that devil Conan. The siege engines are false, mere frames of palm trunk and painted silk that fooled our scouts who thought they saw them from afar. A trick to draw us out to our doom. Our warriors flee. Kumbanagash is down. Conan slew him. I do not see Constantius. The Qurani raged through the milling masses like blood-mad lions, and desert men feathered them with arrows. I... <laughs> there was a flicker as of lightning, or trenchant steel, a burst of bright blood. Then abruptly the image vanished, like a bursting bubble, and Salome was staring into an empty crystal ball that mirrored only her own furious features. She stood perfectly still for a few moments, erect and staring into space. Then she clapped her hands and, an and another skull-like priest entered, as silent and immobile as the first. Constantius is beaten, she said swiftly. We are doomed. Conan will be crashing at our gates within the hour. If he catches me, I have no illusions as to what I can expect. But first I'm going to make sure that my cursed sister never ascends the throne again. Follow me. Come what may, we shall give Thaug a feast. As she descended the stairs and galleries of the palace, she heard a faint rising echo from the distant walls. The people there had begun to realize that the battle was going against Constantius. Through the dust clouds, masses of horsemen were visible, racing toward the city. Palace and prison were connected by a long, closed gallery, whose vaulted roof rose on gloomy arches. Hurrying along this, the false queen and her slave passed through a heavy door at the other end that let them into, a dim -lit, that, that let them into the dim-lit recesses of the prison. They had emerged into a wide, arched corridor at a point near where a stone stair descended, descended into the darkness. Salome recoiled suddenly, swearing. In the gloom of the hall lay a motionless form, a Shemitish jailer, his short beard tilted towards the roof as his head hung on a half-severed neck. As panting voices from below reached the girl's ears, she shrank back into the hollow, into the black shadow of an arch, pushing the priest behind her, her hand groping in her girdle. Bum, bum, dum, bum, dum, dum. <laughs> we got our Lord of the Rings battle moment, and oh, what a moment oh, it man. was. Yeah, the charge of the Quranian uh, horsemen. Oh, man. That's so that's so awesome. And yeah, yeah see, all these people, right? Cause, and I know we talked about this in other Conan readings. Um, nowadays, when, when we think of a barbarian, we think of, you know, big in the arm, small in the head. Uh, mm -hmm. But no, Conan reads. He he uh, he uh, he he can he constructs this whole like oh look at these like kind of uh, big big siege engines that I'm gonna use to knock down the city walls and then they have to rush out and they have to sally forth. But no, it's just oh man, yeah, love Conan. It's really good. Like so damn cool. Like mm -hmm. 
It's awesome. Yeah. I, I also <sighs> like um, Salome just, well, he's dead. We're fucked. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. Hamburgers. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, oh, hamburgers. Also, shout out to like the cool uh, Crystal Ball, Ansible, um, early like cell phone thing going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where she and uh, Zhang are FaceTiming and he's showing her the <laughs> the battle in progress. That's that's pretty neat. That's pretty stinking cool. Yeah. Well, and it's I a guess cool use of the magic, you know, like Right, yeah. yeah. And and also Howard says like, look, I don't know how this magic works. I'm going to write that nobody understands the dark filaments that that link these things together. So just don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's sweet. That's awesome. So, well, and then I guess that brings us to the thrilling conclusion, uh, final chapter here, chapter six, The Vulture's Wings. It was the smoky light of a torch which roused Teramis, Queen of Karan, from the slumber in which she sought forgetfulness. Lifting herself on her hand, she raked back her tangled hair and blinked up, expecting to meet the mocking countenance of Salome, maligned with new torments. Instead, a cry of pity and horror reached her ears. Terebus! Oh, my queen! <laughs> the sound was so strange to her ears that she thought she was still dreaming. Behind the torch, she could make out figures now, the glint of steel, then five countenances bent toward her, not swarthy and hook-nosed, but lean, aquiline faces, browned by the sun. She crouched in her tatters, staring wildly. One of the figures sprang forward and fell on one knee before her, arms stretched appealingly toward her. Oh, Terebus! Thank Ishtar we have found you! Do you not remember me, Valerius? One with your own lips, well, once with your own lips you praised me, after the Battle of Corveca! Valerius, she stammered. Suddenly tears welled in her eyes. Oh, I dream. It is some magic of Salome to torment me. No! The cry rang with exultation. It is your own true vassals come to rescue you. Yet we must hasten. Constantius fights in the plain against Conan, who has brought the Zwagirs across the river. But three hundred Shemites yet hold the city. We slew the jailer and took his keys and have seen no other guards. But we must be gone. Come! The queen's legs gave way, not from weakness, but from rea but from the reaction. Valerius lifted her like a child, and with the torchbearer hurrying before them, they left the dungeon and up the slimy stone stairs. It seemed to mount endlessly, but presently they emerged into a corridor. They were passing a dark arch when the torch suddenly struck out, and the bearer cried out a fierce, brief agony. A burst of blue fire glared in the dark corridor, and there was a furious face of Salome, lined momentarily, with a beast-like figure crouching beside her. Then the eyes of the watchers were blinded by that blaze. Valerius tried to stagger along the corridor with his, queen, with his queen. Dazedly, he heard the sound of murderous blows driven deep in flesh, accompanied by gasps of death and bestial grunting. The queen was torn brutally from his arms, and a savage blow on his helmet dashed him to the floor. Grimly, he crawled to his feet, shaking his head in an effort to rid himself of the blue flame which still seemed to dance devilishly before him. When his blinded sight cleared, he found himself alone, alone except for the dead. His four companions lay in their blood, heads and bosoms cleft and gashed. Blinded and dazed in that hell-born agony, they had died without an opportunity to defend themselves. The queen was gone. With a bitter curse, Valerius caught up his sword, tearing and tearing his cleft helmet from his head to clang on the flags, blood running down his cheek and from a cut on his scalp. 
Reeling, frantic with indecision, he heard a voice calling his name in desperate urgency. Valerius! Valerius! He staggered to the direction of the voice and rounded a corner just in time to have his arms filled with the soft, supple figure which flung himself frantically at him. Ivga? Are you mad? I had to come, she sobbed. I followed you, hidden in an arch in the outer court. A moment ago I saw her emerge with a brute who carried a woman in his arms. I knew it was Teramis and that you had failed. Oh, you are hurt! A scratch, he put aside her clinging hands. Quick, Ivga, tell me which way they went. They fled across the square toward the temple. He paled. Oh, Ishtar, oh, the fiend! She means to give Teramis to the devil she worships. Quick, Ivga, run to the south wall where the people watch the battle. Tell them their re- that their real queen has been found, that the impostor has dragged her to the temple. Go! Sobbing, the girl sped away, her light sandals pattering on the cobblestones, and Valerius raced across the court, plunged into the street, and da- dashed into the square, whereupon it debauched, and raced before the great structure that rose to the opposite side. His flying feet spurned the marble as he darted up the broad stair, and through the pillared portico. Evidently, their prisoner had given them some trouble. Teramis, sensing the doom intended for her, was fighting against it with all the strength of her splendid young body. Once she had broke away from the brutish priest, only to be dragged down again. Oh man, that's a great, his flying feet spurned the marble. That's that is good. Drink, drink. drink. Howard, you beautiful bastard. (laughs) (laughs) The group was halfway down the broad nave, at the other end of which stood the grim altar, and beyond that the great metal door, obscenely carven, through which many had gone, but from which only Salome had ever emerged. Termis's breath came in panting gasps. Her tattered garment had been torn from her in the struggle. She writhed in the grasp of her apish captor like a white naked nymph in the arms of a satyr. Salome watched cynically, though impatiently, moving toward the carven door, and from the dusk that lurked along the lofty walls, the obscene gods and gargoyles leered down, as if imbued with salacious life. Choking with fury, Valerius rushed down the great hall, sword in hand. At a sharp cry from Salome, the skull-faced priest looked up, then released Teramis, drew a heavy knife, already smeared with blood, and ran at the oncoming Karani. But cutting down men blinded by the devil's flame loosed by Salome was different from fighting a wiry young Hyborian of fire with hate and rage. Up went the dripping knife, but before it could fall, Valerius's keen narrow blade slashed through the air, and the fist that held the knife jumped from its wrist in a shower of blood. Valerius, berserk, slashed again and yet again before the crumpling figure could fall. The blade licked through flesh and bone. The skull-like head flew one way, the half-sundered torso the other. Valerius wheeled on his toes, quick and fierce as a jungle cat, glaring about for Salome. She must have exhausted her fire dust in the prison. She was bending over Teramis, grasping her sister's black locks in one hand, and in the other lifting a dagger. Then with a fierce cry, Valerius' sword was sheathed in her breast with such fury that the point sprang out between her shoulders. With an awful shriek, the witch sank down, writhing in convulsions, grasping at the naked blade as it, as it was withdrawn, smoking and dripping. Her eyes were inhuman. And with a more than human vitality, she clung to the life that ebbed through the wound that split the crimson crescent on her ivory bosom. She groveled on the floor, clawing and biting at the naked stones in her agony. Drink! <laughs>
Mm-mm-mm. Man, you stabbed the bad guy. <laughs> oh, 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 geez. Oh, Ishtar. <laughs> oh, Ishtar. Well, well, sometimes I just get so mad. <laughs> I just can't Dallas, believe you would Dallas, steal our queen. I stabbed like. the dark queen. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I'm picturing him. Yeah, when he's like all beat up and all that, it's when he gets the ninja star to the eye. And... <laughs> Valeria sat there with a ninja star in his eye. Igva. <laughs> or anyway, um, uh, where? I'll, I'll Actually, pick it up. Okay, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, sick into the sight, Valeria stooped and lifted the half fainting queen. Turning his back on the twisting figure on the floor, he ran toward the door, stumbling in his haste. He staggered out upon the portico, halted at the head of the steps. The square, thro- the square thronged with people. Some had come at Igva's incoherent cries. Others had deserted the walls in fear of the oversweeping hordes out of the desert, fleeing unreasoningly toward the center of the city. Dumb resignation had vanished. The throng seethed and milled, yelling and screaming about the road where there sounded somewhere the splintering of stone and timbers. A band of grim Shemites cleft the crowd, the guard of the northern gates, hurrying toward the south to reinforce their comrades there. They reined up short at the sight of the youth on the steps, holding the limp, naked figure in his arms. The head of the throng turned toward the temple. The crowd gaped, a new bewilderment aided in their swirling confusion. Here is your queen, yelled Valerius, straining to make himself understood above the clamor. The people gave back bewilderment, a bewildered roar. They did not understand, and Valerius sought in vain to lift his voice above the bedlam. The Shemites rode toward the temple steps, beating a way through the crowd with their spears. Then a new grisly element introduced itself into the frenzy. Out of the gloom of the temple, behind Valerius, wavered a small white figure laced with crimson. The people screamed. There, in the arms of Valerius, hung the woman they thought was their queen. Yet in the temple door staggered another figure, like the reflection of her. Their brains reeled. Valerius felt his blood congeal as he stared at the swaying witch girl. His sword transfixed her, sundered her heart. She should be dead. By all the laws of nature, she should be dead. Yet there she swayed on her feet, clinging horribly to life. Thog! She screamed, reeling from the doorway. Thog! As if in a frightful invocation, there boomed a thunderous croaking from within the temple, and the snapping of wood and metal. That is the queen, roared the captain of the Shemites, lifting his bow. Shoot down the man and the other woman! But the roar of a roused hunting pack rose from the people. They had guessed the truth at last, understood Valerius's frenzied appeals, knew that the girl who hung limply in his arms was their true queen. With a sh- soul-shattering yell, they surged on the Shemites. Try to say that five goddamn times <laughs> With a soul-shaking yell, they surged on the Shemites, tearing and smiting with tooth and nail and naked hands, with the desperation of hard-pent fury loosed at last. Above them, Salome swayed and tumbled down the marble stairs, dead at last. Arrows flickered about him as Valerius ran back between the pillars of the portico, shielding the body of the queen with his own. Shooting and slashing ruthlessly, the mounted Shemites were holding their own with the maddened crowd. Valerius darted to the temple door. With one foot on the threshold, he recoiled, crying out in horror and despair. Out of the gloom at the other end of the great hall, a vast, dark form heaved up, came rushing toward him in gigantic, frog-like hops. He saw the gleam of great, unearthly eyes, the shimmer of fangs or talons. He fell back from the door, 
and then the whir of a shaft past his ear warned him that death was also behind him. He wheeled desperately. Four or five Shemites had cut their way through the throng and were spurring their, ho their horses up the steps, their bows lifted to shoot him down. He sprang behind a pillar on which the arrows splintered. Teramis had fainted. She hung like a dead woman in his arms. Before the Shemites could loose again, the doorway was blocked by a gigantic shape. With affrighted yells, the mercenaries wheeled and began beating a frantic way through the throng, which crushed back in sudden, galvanized horror, trampling one another in the stampede. But the monsters seemed to be watching Valerius and the girl. Squeezing its vast, unstable bulk through the door, it bounded toward him as he ran down the steps. He felt it looming behind him, a giant, shadowy thing, like a travesty of nature cut out of the heart of night, a black shapelessness in which only the staring eyes and gleaming fangs were distinct. There came a sudden thunder of hooves. A rout of Shemites, bloody and battered, streamed across the square from the south, plowing blindly through the packed throng. Behind them swept a horde of horsemen yelling in a familiar tongue, waving red swords. The exiles returned! With them rode fifty black-bearded desert risers, and at their head, a giant figure in black mail. Conan! shrieked Valerius. Conan! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just... That's this too this good. entire scene, I just see, like, Butters holding, like, you know, <laughs> super totally... hot... Super hot Terramus in his arms. Whoa! And, like, ducking by the pillar. <laughs> oh, hamburgers! Death behind me, too! Like... Oh, jeez. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Go, my minions! Oh, minions. <laughs> the giant yelled a command. Without checking their headlong pace, the desert men lifted their bows, drew, and loosed. A cloud of arrows sang across the square, over the seething hands of the multitudes, and sank feathered deep in the black monster. It halted, wavered, reared, and a black blot against the marble pillars. Again, the, the sharp cloud sang, and yet again the horror collapsed and rolled down the steps as dead as the witch who had summoned it out of the night of ages. Conan drew rein beside the portico and leapt off. Valerius laid the queen on the marble, sinking, back, sinking beside her in utter exhaustion. The people surged about, crowding in. The Sumerian cursed them back, lifting her head, pillowed it against his mailed shoulder. By Krom, what is this? The real Teramis? But who is that yonder? The demon who wore her shape, panted Valerius. Conan swore heartily, ripping a cloak from his sh shoulders of a soldier. He wrapped it about the naked queen. Her long, dark lashes quivered on her cheeks, her eyes open, staring up unbelievably into the Sumerian's scarred face. Conan? Her soft fingers caught at him. Do I dream? She told me you were dead. Scarcely, he grinned hardly. You do not dream. You are the queen of Koran again. I broke Constantius out by the river. Most of his dogs never lived to reach the walls, for I gave orders that no prisoners be taken, except Constantius. The city guard raised the gate in our faces, but we bursted with rams swung from our saddles. I left my wolves outside except this fifty. I don't trust them in here, and the Karani lads were enough to, for the gate guard. It has been a nightmare, she whimpered. Oh, my poor people, you must... Help me try to repay them for all they have suffered, Conan. Henceforth, counselor as well as captain. Conan laughed but shook, his, but shook his head. Rising, he set the queen upon her feet and beckoned to a number of his Karani horsemen, who had not continued to pursue the fleeing Shemites. They sprang from their horses, eager to do the bidding of their newfound queen. No less, that's over with. 
I'm the queen of the Zwagirs now, and I must lead them to plunder the Tyrannians, as I promised. This lad Valerius will make you a better captain than I. I wasn't made to dwell in the marble walls anyway. But I must leave you now, and complete what I've begun. Shemites still live in Koran. As Valerius started to follow Teramis across the square toward the palace, through a lane opened by the wildly cheering multitude, he felt a soft hand slip timidly into his sinewy fingers and turned to receive the slender body of Evga in his arms. He crushed her to him and drank her kisses with the gratitude of a weary fighter who has attained rest at last through tribulation and storm. But not all men seek rest and peace. Some are born with the spirit of the storm in their blood, restless harbingers of violence and bloodshed, knowing no other path. The sun was rising. The ancient caravan road was thronged with white-robed horsemen in a wavering line that stretched from the walls of Karan to a spot far out in the plain. Conan the Sumerian sat at the head of that column, near the jagged end of a wooden beam that stuck up out of the ground. Near that stump rose a heavy cross, and on that cross, a man hung by spikes through his hands and feet. Seven months ago, Constantius, said Conan, it was I who hung there, and you who sat here. Constantius did not reply. He licked his gray lips and his eyes were glassy with pain and fear. Muscles writhed like cords along his lean body. You are more fit to inflict torture than to endure it, said Conan tranquilly. I hung there on a cross as you are hanging, and I lived, thanks to circumstances and a stamina peculiar to barbarians. But you civilized men are soft. Your lives are not nailed to your spines as are ours. Your fortitude consists mainly in inflicting torment, not in enduring it. You will be dead before sundown. And so, Falcon of the Desert, I leave you to the companionship of another bird of the desert. He gestured toward the vultures whose shadows swept along the sands as they wheeled overhead. From the lips of Constantius came an inhuman cry of despair and horror. Conan lifted his reins and rode toward the river that shone like silver in the morning sun. Behind him, the white-clad riders struck into a trot. The gaze of each, as he passed a certain spot, turned impersonally and with the desert man's lack of compassion toward the cross and the gaunt figure that hung there, black against the sunrise. Their horses' hooves beat out a knell in the dust. Lower and lower swept the wings of the hungry vultures. Damn! Credits! Oh, man. That is a a good one. That's a real good one. Oh, that's so good. Woo! Uh, I mean... Yeah, shoot. Where to even start? I I don't I, I don't know. Uh, uh, good boy Butters Valerius got his promotion. <laughs> got his promotion. Yeah, got his promotion. He he got his he got his sweetheart Ivga. Um, <laughs> well, Conan's now I'm now I'm the Tyrannians. Yeah, now yeah, Conan's gonna go off there. He's like, look, I I've had enough of this. You know, I'm a I'm a restless barbarian. I don't I don't do this city life counseling. So. Uh, yeah, the queen is restored. The evil sister is killed. Uh, Thaug, this gross frog monster thing, is dead. Um. <laughs> so there's a cool note there in um, Thog, or Thaug, mm. or however we're saying it. Um, yeah. So 
within the Lovecraft slash Howard verse because they were buddies and wrote about each other's stuff. There's another guy named Clark Ashton Smith who wrote a story called Sothogua. But actually, Sothogua was a character first listed in um, Howard's uh, Children of the Night. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Howard had created the, the like the demigod. He's like a big like frog god, and his name is Sothogua. And I am 900% mm. sure that Thag is, you know, supposed yeah. to be like... The manifestation therein. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, I, I, either him or an avatar or an aspect of. Yeah, it's got to be something. See, that's man, that's so stinking cool. Okay. Also, as I'm winding down with my dissertation, yes, listeners, I have been. I made it through crunch. Um, yeah, you did. Uh, I still, I still have revisions. You know, I'm, I'll get some feedback. But once I'm done with all of that writing, I think we need to start like the two wizards mythos cycle. Um, okay. And and yeah, like I'll like I'll write a short story, and then you can write a short story, and we can like kind of create this. We can sort of like create and expand upon this universe where there's this little Gershon guy running around doing mischief, and <laughs> and then there's a little Quincy cat who just like warbles through the night. <laughs> Goes wow wow wow. But that came yowling God. down the corridor. Yeah, right. Came yowling down the, counter, the corridor. Man, every time, you know, every time we we Lovecraft or Howard, I just, I just, I just get horned up for mayhem. It's I so stinking good. Yeah, especially this one. This one is. It's a little bit darker, like especially like the torture yeah. aspect, and yeah, yet um, is- Salome and Constantius are like cartoonishly evil like i want a dress made of human skin yeah but yeah still like, let me twirl my yeah, mustache like, let's talk about rape and plunder yeah it's good yeah exactly right exactly so yeah this is definitely um uh when would you show y- your kids this conan story <laughs> a, a, a different sort of crossover event yeah this would probably be more like more like high school than like Elementary school, <laughs> something like that. But, mm-hmm. but, but that's just it. You know, that's what we're talking about too. You know, it's 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 the, yeah, it's the like truly good and the truly evil, uh, and good triumphs, but not Conan because like Conan is apart from all of that, and that's what I also love about this too. Is he's like, no, like I'm a different breed. I'm a different. You know, we we barbarians. We're we're, we're amoral in that sense mm-hmm. uh which is also man just a great little bit great great little detail from the story god damn ah, chaotic neutral so man they're throw wrenches yeah. and shit yeah or like <laughs> you save my city come be my cap the captain of my guard ah fuck you i'm gonna go pillage yeah or like barbarian lawful neutral like he's true to the laws of the of the sumerians and right. crom <laughs> so Oh man, so stinking good. Well, uh, big takeaways. Um, yeah, good and evil. Um, oh man, God, if you're gonna, I don't know, like, crucifixion should come back. I just, I'm just saying, like, no, yeah, it's you know, a, it's a in its own horrible way, nasty. Yeah, it's a nasty, nasty um, um, form of light. Well, and, and that's the other part too, right? Like, um, again, also like, um, uh. Adopted father of the podcast or stepfather of the podcast, I guess. Um, Tom Holland uh, in his book Dominion, like he's writing about like 
We don't understand how, like, truly horrible crucifixion was. And specifically because it was, like, a public humiliation. Right. And, like, a public... Because, like, okay, yeah, sure, there's public egg, egg, executions, like, hanging or, like, the guillotine or something. But no, like... And, th- and that happened. That happened at the end of the story. As Conan is, is riding his, like, desert raiders off, like, they all just kind of look off at Constantius and, like, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> Later, nerd. Yeah. Later, nerd. I wrote an... I wrote a crucifixion episode, and maybe one day we'll do it. But, like, Mm -hmm. it's hard to do because, really, it's just, like, humans have been killing each other by tacking each other to pieces of wood for fucking centuries. And, like... Yeah. But, you know, you know, uh, who was it? Uh, Oh, God, now my, like, nerd cred is fading me. The guy that, like, crucified all the Spartacus army across the Appian Way. Oh, um... Cassius? Not Cassius. It wasn't Caesar. It was... Crassus? Marcus Crassus, right? Yeah, Marcus Crassus. Yeah. But just that, like, he, you know, every, what was it, 20 feet, there was another crucified person. The entire span yeah. of the road. It's just like, how yeah, much I fucking can... time do you have? Like, I guess right, all of it. Yeah. I guess you have nothing but time, but still. Yeah, yeah no, yeah, it was the, the Third Servile War. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, 6,000 survive, And I, I guess, like... Uh, foreshadowing or 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 spoiler for when we get to crucifixion or other like public executions, I guess. Yeah, six thousand survivors of the uh, slave revolt uh, captured by the legions of Crassus were crucified, lining the Appian Way from Rome to Capua, a distance of more than a hundred miles. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's six. Insane. Yeah, six per mile, uh, mas o menos. Um, yeah, Marcus Crassus. Yeah, brutal, brutal stuff. Uh, but also, like, brutal and beautiful is definitely the works of Robert E. Howard and Conan. And so, listeners, what what were your thoughts? Um, what were your reactions listening to the story? Should we do more uh, Conan via South Park? Are there any Salome stands? Because I, I guess, you know, that's something else, too. Like, she is in some ways a very sympathetic character because she didn't ask to be born with this curse you know and you know for a hundred years or so right like all of her uh uh, ancestors who just happened to be born with this crescent mark they were killed and like that's that's horrible and in some ways yeah she like has a lot of like valid complaints but then you don't go around like (laughs) feeding your citizens and portraying these like blasphemous comedies uh when you when you impersonate your twin sister who's the queen like that's not that's not the way to go about it classic villain salome right there um shout out like man there's a bit of a deep cut to our like super villains um yeah Yeah, yeah. man she's a great super villain um but anyway listeners but what does she tell constantius i picked you because you are devoid of the characteristics that men call good (laughs) i picked you because you are the opposite of good. Yeah. <laughs> Get in touch with us. We always love hearing from you. Um, send an email to twowizardspodcast at gmail.com. It's actually been... It's been a stretch. It's been a stretch since we've had any emails. Um, so I'm so I'm, I'm calling you out, listeners. Send us an email. Do that thing. And then we'll read it on the, on the next episode if you want us to. Because, yeah, it's been... It, it's, it's, it's been a minute, yeah. It, it, it has been some time. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter at uh, Two Wizards Pod at Two Wizards Pod C One. We're active on Facebook and Instagram. 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Plaid Barbarian. Uh, Mark is also on Twitter, as well as a whole bunch of other High Hammock Radio productions. So, Mark, why don't you tell everybody else about what some of those things are? Uh, yeah, if you didn't get enough of me tonight spouting my love for Conan and Robert E. Howard, well, come over to the I Can't Wait to Show My Kids podcast, where I'm sure at some point we're going to discuss the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Conan the Barbarians. Uh, but it's oh, a yeah. weekly cinematic review podcast where me and our buddy Brad and sometimes Josh, well, we all come together and we watch a movie that was fundamental to us as kids that the others haven't seen. And then we talk about, well, when do you show this thing that was so crucial to you? When do you show it to your kids? Or you can pop on over to the Dangle Podcast, a weekly retrospective rewatch of King of the Hill. Uh, me and John here in season 13, we are rocketing just down that pipeline of almost being done. And it is such a weird feeling to have. So, by all means, please go back to the beginning and do it, because we watch every single episode of King of the Hill. Yeah. So you don't have to. Um, and in the meantime, you can find me at Marky Stardust on Twitter, and you can find us also on Blue Sky at High Hammock Radio. I don't know if you plugged that or not. I don't remember. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. I, Lunar I Throne is stronger than I am. Yeah, no, no, that's okay. I, I did miss that one, so good. Good catch on that. And, uh... So, Mark, thank you for uh, uh, reading this amazing story with me. Always, always fun. Always a pleasure. Listeners, thank you for joining us along here. Uh, and uh, we look forward to having you uh, the next time around here at the Two Wizards Podcast. So, my name is Josh, and I am a wizard. And my name is Mark, and I'm a wizard. Thank you for being here, everybody. Thank you for being here, Josh. And we hope you'll continue to hang around with us. Take care, everyone. Good night. <laughs>